When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The deaths of Queen Rhaenys and even more so Princess Myria led to the end of the first Dornish War. But ultimately, the final decision to end it was made by Aegon the Conqueror upon receipt of the mysterious letter that he burned immediately after reading. What was in that letter? Was it sorcery? A threat? A revelation? We have questions beyond this as well. For example, it worked, so why didn't Miria try it? What was her thinking on it? What What's the deal there? And if Rhaenys did, say, survive her fall when Meraxes was shot down, what exactly did they promise, if, if that is the answer? And if it's not, well, we've got further questions. That and the legacies of Rhaenys and Maria, what their deaths meant for their respective countries other than the end of the war. Well, we've got that and more on this episode of History of Westeros podcast. Hello and welcome back, everybody. It's another excellent edition of the Fire and Blood read-through, we hope. We hope you agree. <laughs> I'm going to say that he burned that letter immediately and conveniently, or inconveniently, yeah. depending on how you look at I it. I know. <laughs> Talk about burn after reading. Like, you'd think, <laughs> it's not surprising that the Targaryens are big on that one. We have live streams every 3 p.m. on Sundays for stuff like this. Maybe occasionally we don't, but most Sundays, I should say. Afterwards, every video is available on YouTube where it was streamed, and an edited version will appear on Spotify. The audio version will appear everywhere you can get podcasts, and there is an ad-free version on Patreon. If you join us there, you can listen without any ad breaks. We are in the midst of our topics moot now. At the midpoint of this episode, I'll let you all know what topics we've done so far, what are in progress, and a, a sneak peek at a few that are coming. That's pretty fun. We're picking 12 topics to get made into episodes this year. Sean, I see you got a Clutch shirt on. That's awesome. One of my favorite bands of all time. The band I've seen the most live. Is that also the case for you? I have lost track. I think you've seen them like twice as much as me, but I've seen Clutch, Mastodon, and The Sword around a dozen times each. Mm. You know, one might be 10 or 14, but yeah. I've seen, I've definitely seen Clutch 30 times or around, yeah. and that's not an exaggeration. <laughs> we were, we've been counting since it was in the teens, so <laughs> I know <laughs> it's a big number, but that's also because I'm an old man and I've had lots of time to see that band. They've been around for And they've, they've toured a lot too. Yeah. They've toured mm -hmm. like constantly pretty much never never no lineup change or anything like that too so they've always yeah they've been together since high school <laughs> it's pretty hard to do that you're sure it looks like a sunspear martell type yeah, yeah it is it's i can uh, see the image inside the sun there it's a little red viperish i think it's not like explicitly the red viper but i think that's who it's supposed to inspire people to think of it's a spear silhouette is the spear is the shot of the red viper yeah, yeah I, I think it's like silhouette. not everyone's gonna immediately know that but it's a safe first guess and is indeed correct so yeah it's a cool shirt i don't have a lot of brown shirts and this is a fire and bloodish or so, rather unbowed and bent and brokenish the son of dorn and the spear yeah very martell it's pretty sweet i like the shirt 
All right. So shout out to our good friend, Nina. You guys didn't ask me about my shirt. Oh, of course. Well, Shay has got a cool shirt, too. We don't always talk about your shirt because it's you not on camera. You can't see it, yeah. <laughs> I'm in, a, in an Across the Spider-Verse sweatshirt, in fact, which is, uh, I guess, my favorite movie of last year. Nice. Yes, it was really fun. Our experience at it was less fun than it could have been. If any of y'all have ever gone to a 4D theater with the shaking seats, oh, man. 4D with the wind and the, the mist, I like that, but... We went to the one where your your seats were moving like a roller coaster. Like you literally couldn't take a sip from your drink. One of our friends sat on the ground, almost sat on the ground because he was getting nauseous. I was also like that. I almost sat on the I ground. I really thought we needed seatbelts. That's how bad it was, actually. Yeah. But I love the movie. Love the movie. Hated that experience. Yes. So if you had a similar experience at that movie or another one, let us know in the chat because I think they abandoned, they cut back on that right away. They're like, nobody liked that. <laughs> so let's tone that down a bit. <laughs> yeah. I can't not add a little bit to this. I just want to point out Barbie was my favorite movie of last year. Nice. Which is nominated for Best Picture. And Across the Spider-Verse, nominated for Best Animated Movie. Along with The Boy and the Heron, which I just saw at the theater, which was pretty good too. Oh, but great. I'm torn. I think I like Spider-Verse better, but they're both yeah, good in different ways. Violet. I want to see Nimona still as well. Um, also nominated for Best Animated Film. Mm. Uh, I plan on seeing that next month. Right on. Well, let's shout, shout out our good friend Nina. Her blog is at Good Queen Alley. That's A-L-Y. Uh, S-A-N. Uh, good, good Queen Alley. G-O-O-D. Q-U-E-E-N-A-L-Y. I've never bothered to spell it all the way out. I just say one L in Alley. But yeah dot tumblr.com and tumblr doesn't have an e oh my gosh t-u-m-b-l-r there's how do they do that it's <laughs> all this time Magic. i thought it was g-u-d <laughs> good good queen, queen. queen alley yes <laughs> and her latest blog post is she got a question about the unknown metals of the citadel as in what chains represent what there's several metals that we know appear uh, as associated with certain uh, studies that we don't actually know what those studies are, like brass, pewter, platinum, red, gold, and tin, for example. And she fills in the blanks with some educated guesses. I particularly like her guesses for brass and platinum. So check that out if you're so inclined. If you have questions of your own, send them to westeroshistory at gmail.com or connect with us through Patreon or any of the other social media sites. But westeroshistory at gmail.com is perhaps the most surefire way. My head canon is that brass it means they learn how to play the trumpet. <laughs> <laughs> Music, eh? woodwinds specifically, yes. Let's start with our trivia question. Dornish blank became slang north of the Red Mountains for cowardice. Fill in the blank. Dornish blank became slang for cowardice. What is the blank? That's the answer, blank. Yes, Dornish, say you Dornish blank. <laughs> That's right, blank man everywhere. <laughs> this episode will be concerned with the deaths of Princess Miria, Queen Rhaenys, and Meraxes, and what their deaths meant to the respective causes and countries and family, and how ultimately these elements were crucial to forging a peace after a long period in which there seemed to be no end in sight to a very brutal, bloody war. This is a big part of their respective legacies, which we will dig into deeper in the second half. The first part is, of course, the peace process and the letter. Apart from those two meaning Maria and Rhaenys. Our cast of characters today includes the other two heads of the dragon, of course, Visenya and Aegon, Prince Nymor and his daughter heir, Princess Deria, Oris Baratheon, the new hand of the king, Lord Alton Seltigar, who actually doesn't do very much, but we he, he should be mentioned because he was the hand of the king in this era. Lord Oakhart makes a, a brief appearance. Grandmaster Gowan, 
who is the third ever Grandmaster. He is a big part of this. Young Prince Anis is around, and even younger Prince Magor is on the scene. Also, a correction from last episode. I goofed on Magor's birth date. He was born in 12, not 10. I have a mental block on that. This is not the first time I've made that mistake, so... Eh. It happens. That means Visenya was not pregnant when the King's Guard was formed, so take that with a grain of salt. I don't think I made any other points based on that wrong date. It's it's all the two year doesn't make that much difference in terms of guesstimating and other things like that. The heir and a spare did change the Targaryen picture, but since both happened before the peace was consummated, it doesn't really matter. So yeah, my my brain is stuck on Magor being two years older than he really was, but uh, we'll deal with that. So the death of Myria. Let's have a quote picking us up basically where we left off last time. Age and ill health finally did what dragons and armies could not. In 13 AC, Miriam Martell, the yellow toad of Dorne, died abed, whilst having intimate relations with a stallion her enemies insisted. Her son Nymor succeeded her as Lord of Sunspear and Prince of Dorne. Sixty years old, his health already failing, the new Dornish prince had no appetite for further slaughter. He began his reign by sending a delegation to King's Landing to return the skull of the dragon Meraxes and offer King Aegon terms of peace. His own heir, his daughter Daria, led the embassy. So Nina mentioned the parallel to Catherine the Great last time, which is only slightly less ridiculous. The woman, you know, hooking up with a horse. This is even what I buy. I mean, less ridiculous for Catherine the Great is that Catherine the Great was at least like not a 90 something year old woman. (laughs) It just makes it a little more ridiculous. Like, yeah, this 95 year old woman's hooking up with a horse. Yeah, it's not that much more realistic for a 35 year old woman, but I would say it's (laughs) even less likely for a 95 year old. Anyway, it's clearly absurd in any case. But I can imagine the coronation being an unusually unfancy affair, like big celebration for the new Prince of Dorne. Yeah, after nine years of an incredibly brutal war, I think this was probably a low, you know, a a low festivity affair. They're just like, yep, all right, time to move on. What are we going to do now? I have to make a Letterkenny reference here. I know you haven't seen it, but anyone that has will know what I mean when I say it was a sick horse. A sick horse? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) When you watch Letterkenny, you know what I mean. So the Targaryens didn't burn Sunspear, though, so at least it wasn't like they weren't having a coronation and, you know, a burned out husk of a building, but uh, they probably kept it small. You know, they didn't need word getting out. That's the thing they needed was like assassins or, or a dragon showing up to just torch the affair entirely. You need to point out that one interesting aspect to this war is that we don't actually get a lot of internal politicking and, and court f- factionalism, if there was any in Dorne. We we're it's this is fire and blood. It's focused on the Targaryen history. So we have less of the Dornish point of view. In fact, we have very little of the Dornish point of view. And you really wonder what was going on down there. Were they arguing about whether to keep the war going? What did Miria know her son was gonna immediately flip the switch when she died? Was she aware of that or should she suspect it? What did what did Deria think? Deria's the neck now the heir at this point after uh, Miria dies. So is she on her grandmother's side? Is she on her father's side? Is she kind of neutral? Does she play in both sides? It's really not very clear to us. But it w- but it's an interesting thing to consider. Were they debating it? Were was there? Did it get like tense? Was there threats made, or were they just kind of all on one mind about it, or just pretty happy with Mary's leadership and ready to keep fighting? Well, probably not because 
Nymore stopped it immediately. He sent this delegation, like, apparently within weeks of his mother's death. And this would have been an interesting state of affairs because they might have expected this to happen much sooner. Like, this 95-ish year old woman, like, they probably thought she would have died, like, 20 years before. Like, before this war even started, they would have expected her to pass. So... It was one of the things where just any day now <laughs> she might pass and then we might ch- everything will change potentially. But but they couldn't know for sure that the peace would be accepted. They couldn't know for sure that their plan would work. They may not have even had the plan at that point. It reminds me a little bit uh, thinking about uh, House of the Dragon when uh, Viserys dies, the sort of domino effect that came, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, like Damon suspected that they killed him. For yeah, now yeah. it's a little more reasonable for her to uh, die when she's 95 years old or whatever. But also, how much milk of the poppy was she on leading up to that moment? How much of a puppet was she to people who did want the war to keep going? If at all. Yeah, yeah, maybe not right, at yeah. all. But, but maybe. much like House of the Dragon fleshed out a lot of stuff and raised new questions or gave us new imper- interpretations. There's so much mm-hmm. for us to so much drama and, and detail and characterization that could be played out if they made a show out of this scenario and even though we can't know we have like you said it's got similarities it's got parallels we get to we at least have an idea of what questions to ask of what Mm -hmm. what we should be wondering about the types of things that would be going on or probably would be going on we don't know but it's not crazy to think that there would be factions that wanted peace or wanted revenge right yeah yeah would have been in charge of those factions how strong would they have been how were they manipulating Maria leading up to her death? How did they play out after she died, et cetera? I mean, heck, we make those assumptions about the children of the forest that maybe they had factions within them, maybe even the others. That seems less likely because there there might be a magical creation or a magical race or something, but still, so they don't have to necessarily follow human societal rules where you have all this diversity of opinion necessarily or at least two opinions <laughs> you fight yeah. honor for peace you know <laughs> but like even if uh you know maybe there's other elements to this uh question or line of thought or whatever but even like a pack of wolves or orangutans have factions right yes. it's not like only humans can have factions good point so. and, and dorn is known for being a factionalist place it's never been terribly united it's always been sort of the least united of the seven kingdoms or the eight kingdoms or yeah forget the number you know what i mean like when balan swan journeys to sunspear and has that feast with doran there's blatantly many dornish lords do not drink to the toast to the king you know they're like what and obar like flat out turns her cup oh you know like makes yeah. a big scene out of it so it's not it's not even like i think i wonder what side they're on he didn't like look no they're blatant about it so it they know they seem like that in a uh, dunkin egg too wasn't there oh gosh I'm yeah oh yeah yeah you're names, right in the, the, in the, the mystery black night. fire pretender mm-hmm. yeah you know made a toast and some people drank and some didn't you know. yeah and uh yeah it was fireballs son quote unquote who who said who poured his wine out and, and blood raven in disguise was like it's a waste of good wine man <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah did you put fireball son quote unquote in quotes like that because really it should be true born sure, <laughs> that's right that's right so so the parallels are strong and we think about the type of place dorn is and it would be kind of wild to think that they were all just on the same page but they were maybe a lot of attitudes about they were probably were fairly agreed that they didn't want to just give up. However, giving up can mean a lot of different things. There's peace. They're suing for peace. There's asking for concessions and there's just 
hey, can we just stop now? You know, there's a lot of different versions of that, whether you ask for something I mean, or anything else. In modern Dorne, we don't see it as a monolith, and we see them infighting and having slight disagreements, but generally still being on the same page overall of what they want, but they still have a variety of opinions. Yeah, keep in mind, that's a great point, Shay. keep in mind that it's not like Nymeria's uh, unification of Dorne is in the ancient past. It's pretty far in the past, but we're not talking Age of Heroes, we're not talking, you know, it's not as recent as the Doom of, of Valyria, but the, you know, because they fled before the Doom. But, you know, we're talking like five, six hundred years, maybe? It's not known. We, we were, it's a guesstimation. But we're talking hundreds of years, not even a thousand. So, yeah. So, the Dorne is still, was still changing at this point uh, from their new scenario. There, you still have people, like, named after her, like, blatantly. Nymeria, Nymor, Myria, Deria. Like, that doesn't happen as much now. You still have Nim and... But Doran and these other names that aren't really connected to that. Also, to Shay's point in the uh, I don't know current timeline, um, where the Dornish aren't directly at odds, they generally have the same big picture goals, but they still have different routes there. And there's also a lot of intrigue. There, there's secrets being kept about what different people's plans are, right? So, same could have happened in this scenario. Yeah. So I wonder if Nymor had this idea well ahead of him enacting himself and think i think he probably did because the timing is otherwise very suspicious it's not like otherwise we're saying he had the idea the minute his mom died you know or right before she died he's like you know what this is a good idea he probably had it sooner maybe a lot sooner and tried to suggest it to her and she rejected it for some reason or another and we'll go through what those possible reasons would be throughout this episode one of them would be maybe it was too soon like he's like no there's no way they're going to agree to this so soon after rainy's death Maybe after more time has passed and maybe she thought it took more time. Maybe she was just against it. But by the time she, she died, it was like, OK, it's been three years or two and a half years since Rainy died. Maybe now we have a chance to, to finally end this. Nina also suggests perhaps Diria was if Diria was like Miria and was more aggressive and energetic and wanted to keep the war going. Nymore may have felt very pressured to do his best, thinking he may have only had a short time. Because it does say his health is already failing. He's already in his 60s. He's maybe a Doran Martell figure, like a, a ruler of Dorne who is trying to do his best to keep his nation from suffering. Of course, at this point, they've already suffered. So it's more like further suffering at this point. And, you know, he doesn't need to see more Dorne people killed for a war that can't be won. So he had to act when he could. I like that theory a lot. Now, we don't necessarily know if that's true. We don't know what kind of person Diria was. But there is some evidence that we'll get into a bit later that does kind of indicate Deary may have been more of the martial type, you know, the more of the stick it out type. Now, and I, this isn't a suggestion that Nymor was cowardly or anything like that, because there's a lot of risk to this strategy. There was a lot of ways this could have gone wrong, as we'll see. We can't just be hindsight about it and say, yeah, it worked. So clearly it was they and they knew it would work. No, they didn't. They couldn't have known. In fact, it could have backfired very badly. And, and we'll, we'll get into that. So if the Targaryens just kept coming and, and burning stuff, it's like, why would they expect a peace delegation to even stop? What leverage did they have, right? Well, they had whatever leverage is in this letter, apparently. There's something in there that <laughs> that worked. But yeah, we don't know what that was. So let's get to that. Uh, the year 12. So one year tw prior to this peace process, the second ever Grand Maester broke his hip, slipping in the mud. And he had been the Grand Maester since basically the beginning because the first Grand, Mas Grand Maester lasted less than a year. So this was this guy had been around for about eight years. So the third ever Grand Maester was elevated. His name was Gawain. 
or Gawen, G-A-W-E-N, and he would take office and hold it for 29 years, so into the reign of Magor. So we won't mention a new Grand Maester for a while, so a little stability in the office, and that's kind of interesting. The first died after less than a year, the second lasted eight, and this guy's like a Picellian length of time. Picel actually lasted over 40 years, so quite a bit more, but still, 29 is a long time. They also have another thing in common. They were both killed rather than dying of natural causes, and they both were killed inside the Red Keep, so... Sorry, Gowan, you're not going to have the best ending, but we're nowhere near that yet. We're still 29 years from that. So, yes, we're not at nowhere near Magor's reign. We haven't even gotten to Aenys or the end of Aegon. Here is another quote. This is the delivery of the peace proposal to the king. Prince Nymor's peace proposals encountered strong opposition in King's Landing. Queen Visenya was hard set against them. No peace without submission, she declared, and her friends on the king's council echoed her words. Oris Baratheon, who had grown bent and bitter in his later years, argued for sending Princess Diria back to her father less a hand. Lord Oakhart sent a raven, suggesting that the Dornish girl be sold into the meanest brothel in King's Landing, till every beggar in the city has had his pleasure of her. Aegon Targaryen dismissed all such proposals. Princess Diria had come as an envoy under a banner of peace and would suffer no harm under his roof, he vowed. I hope I don't have to read any more Lord Oakhart quotes. <laughs> <laughs> that is the only Lord Oakhart quote this episode, yes. <laughs> so it goes to show how much of Aegon's newly established reputation was hanging in the balance. Like, he wasn't in danger of losing the throne or anything, let me be clear, but... His council is offering very dishonorable, very grudge-oriented, very revenge-oriented advice. Like, everyone's specifically offering payback for what had happened to them. Lord Oakhart, that had happened to his son and, and his bride-to-be. And obviously, Oris and a lot of his men lost their sword arms. So they're like, do it to her, yeah. Visenya may have been this hardcore regardless. She's always pretty hardcore. So this, <laughs> I don't know if this is like a change of tune for her. Or this is just how she would have been anyway. And I kind of wonder, it says, and her friends on the king's council. It's not like the king's council is very large. So who are these people? Is she talking? Is Oris one of them? Is Oris on her side? I mean, they seem to have a similar, they seem to be on the same position here. Like, they're both like, no. But it sounds like almost everyone was saying no and loudly no and not only no, only yes if there's lots of violence or anyway. So yeah, this new the new hand, as I said in the intro, the Alton Celtigar, his hand, his opinion's not noted. Although maybe he's one of Visenya's friends on the council, that might be why he's not noted specifically, just because he's in that group. Might be why he's on the council too, because he's her friend. So yeah, good point. Yeah, and he's a Celtigar or Celtigar, meaning he is Valyrian, uh, and more recently Valyrian. They probably haven't mingled with the Seven Kingdoms, with the Andals and First Men nearly as much yet. So Oris is yes, like I said, Oris's suggestion was very personal given his own maiming but consider that like a lot of his court is the same like the he picked remember that was an elite picked squad that he took so it's the closest guys and and the highest ranking of them would have lived minus their sword hand so his whole court right now is a bunch of one-handed guys and they're all like a lot of them are going to be bitter and angry and it's not a, probably not a very good place to be probably a lot of just probably a very gloomy place and i wonder if he was even there like he he wasn't hand anymore but he offered an opinion so either he's still at court after resigning his position or nita suggests he heard the delegation was coming and he showed up to be able to weigh in which i 
somewhat favor that idea because it's kind of weird to resign your position at hand but still hang out at court and just stay there. Like it sounds like he wanted to go be by himself. So he is nearby too, right? So it Storm's be End's not super yeah. far. Yeah, yeah. He would have definitely been able to do that. Yeah. Even if he didn't come specifically for this reason, he mil- he still might be going back and forth because he, I imagine, has connections in King's Landing anyway. So yeah. Now this is uh, this is not this is very hypocritical for these aggressors to be like, oh, they did all this to us. Like you started the war, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but it just goes to show how long this had dragged on how this is not and you can't really claim this is atypical for people you know humans are hypocrites all especially when it comes to long drawn out wars and, and personal violence and re- cycles of revenge you kind of forget how it started even though it wasn't that long ago nine years ago or even if you don't forget you might just not care like when you get your hand cut off you it might not matter to you that someone else started the war that sent you down there yeah. you're just mad that your hand was cut off so. yeah you're not even you're not necessarily even caring about the war. You care about the people that cut your hand off. Like he's like, yeah, yeah. whatever happens with the war, whatever. I want those wills to suffer, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but this is just again, this goes to show how bad it is. Like if in a regular time of peace, like who's just openly preaching this sort of treatment of envoys? Like this isn't just yeah. like enemies. These are envoys. That's I get like this, like this goes back to the Argolac the arrogant thing. This is something that Aegon got rightfully upset about. Of course, it didn't happen, and Aegon was like, no, we're not doing that. So. You know, good, good on him for not allowing that. But still, the fact that they're even suggesting it really just goes to show. And Nina says, yeah, there's a there's a at this point, no one can really claim the moral high ground anymore. There's too many war crimes, even on the Dornish side at this point, for them to say it's purely a war of defense. Like they've invaded the Seven Kingdoms and, and done horrible things to people that really had nothing to do with the war at all so like they lost some moral high ground especially people like the widow lover and guys like that so just so that's part of what's going on here like well we've already given up all pretense of of ceremony and honor so what's a little more you know this is a little piece that i think helps set the stage when we talk about the letter too because it's worth noting that it's not crazy that they would have taken Daria hostage or tortured her or whatever else. Yeah, it is. Maybe uh, it was a gamble or or maybe less of a gamble than we feel like because of what was in that letter. Maybe they knew what was in there would stop them, not just stop the war, but stop them from doing something to Daria. Maybe, but only if they show it to the king, you know, like maybe they're that, right. They got to get to the king safely is a lot of. Yeah, right. Like a, were they could they have been play. could they have been worried that they just have been attacked on the way? Like where they're flying on a peace banner for sure. But like, are they going to are they going to listen? Are they going to like obey that? Are they going to honor that? Yeah, maybe not. So that would have been. Yeah, there's risk. There was serious risk just in going there. Like you would kind of think as a default, weddings have peace banners flying. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that didn't matter. So <laughs> didn't matter in Fontaine. Yeah, it didn't matter in Fontaine or or at the Red Wedding. But, you yeah. know, it's funny because later in the moder- in the main story, the Dornish did that. The Martels did that in a way and sending envoys and sending people to dangerous like situations that could go- blow up in their face. Some of which haven't played out yet because we have like Nymeria and Tyene going to King's Landing. Good point. One, mm-hmm. but. Oberyn went to King's Landing. It ended poorly, but not in a way they could have predicted. <laughs> yeah. And Quentin went to see Danny in a really dangerous way, in a way that I've always judged Dor- Doran for making that call. And it ended poorly, but again, not because of any fault of Danny or anything. But Though she might Quentin. get blamed for it. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, you're right. So, yes, treatment of envoys is a. It can be a casus belli, right? It can be a reason to start a war, or it can be a reason to claim the moral high ground, or, or what have you. Yeah. 
And it is a risk that Doran seems to, or the Martells just seem to take left and right. So yeah, <laughs> there's plenty of times in the real world where envoy, the treatment of envoys has been horrible. Like they just like you go there and like, nope, we chop your heads off. Like that happened to some of Genghis Khan's envoys, much to the future regret of the people who did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he really made them regret that. <laughs> but like, that's that's there's plenty of examples in a song of ice and fire. In our Mantaris episode, we talk about how Danny sent envoys to Mantaris, and they were returned with their heads in a box. And well, I don't suppose Danny's going to look on that kindly. But Mantaris isn't really on her way. Like, I don't know. She might have to let them get away with that. You know, I don't know. But that's something we talk about in that episode. So. The voices in the Red Keep weren't even trying. They weren't even trying to be honorable. They weren't even trying for some semblance of nobility or anything like that they're just letting themselves they're just venting and and running their mouths about <laughs> more atrocities and here's what Aegon said quote the king was weary of war all men agreed but granting the dornishman peace without submission would be tantamount to saying that his beloved sister rainies had died in vain that all the blood and death had been for naught the lords of his small council further cautioned that any such peace could be seen as a sign of weakness and might encourage fresh rebellions, which would then need to be put down. Aegon knew that the Reach, the Stormlands, and the Marches had suffered grievously during the fighting and would neither forgive nor forget. Even in King's Landing, the king dared not let the Dornish outside the Aegon Fort without a strong escort, for fear that the small folk of the city would tear them to pieces. For all these reasons, Grand Maester Lucan wrote later, the king was on the point of refusing the Dornish proposals and continuing the war. Yeah, that goes to show with what we were talking about with regards to the peace delegation even being at risk on their travels. Maybe they took ship because they were like, yeah, we don't want to pass through the countryside where just any random people could attack us. They'd be stupid to do so, but that stupidity might come after, like, the, the penalty for that stupidity might come after they've already inflicted harm on the peace parties. Like, well, that was stupid of them, but we're all going to die. A couple of things that matter here. The common folk clearly loved the Targaryens for the reaction to be like this, for them to be so worked up about Dorne. Clearly, the propaganda machine was working well on on their side making an enemy of Dorne even though they were the aggressor and later in the episode we'll get into part of that why that is it's, it's Rhaenys in particular is the reason for a lot of this she manipulated public opinion a bit and uh it, still it's very interesting that the people of King's Landing were like this and again I have to keep reminding us of this. King's Landing is new. It's This is now the 13th year the city has existed. Not very long. It doesn't have like a long established identity. There isn't like a King's Landing or like culture yet. It's a burgeoning thing. There aren't like people out there that were born and raised in King's Landing and live their whole life there. Yeah, I mean, if you're 20, you were born, you know, you were you were moved there when you were seven. You know, you spent most of your life there. That's still uh, that doesn't really count in the in Westeros where places have existed for thousands of years like 13 years is nothing even though it's already like the size of White Harbor or Gulltown that grew really fast but they're already developing like a, this this population is already growing like a personality and it's starting to have like its own kind of unique uh, vibe to it I guess you could say for lack of a better word and the population of course is going to continue to grow at a really rapid rate but and in some ways that makes it unmanageable because of this constant flux and new people coming in all the time we've we've talked about that a few times and it bears 
repeating here. So it's a difficult spot for Aegon in terms of what mattered to him and in terms of what the realm wanted. In some ways, he created a monster. He started this war, it got out of control, and now he's he got his people whipped up into a frenzy. He, he got them so invested in the war that it's a risk to stop it. They're all so ready to keep going, and he wants. He's kind of like I'm, kind of ready for peace, but everybody else is still like deep in it. They don't. They don't want peace. So, yeah, that's why I say created a monster. But clearly, it wasn't a deal breaker for him, right? Because he did <laughs> accept the peace. Just you know, the, he may not have gone into it ex- expecting to, uh, because the reasons why are a huge point of mystery. And this mystery is a standout in both the plot documents and you know, mystery category. Mystery is a large category. Plot documents. Plotuments is a smaller subcategory. I mean, consider how many important documents there have been. Like, we did Rob's Will as an episode a few months ago, and that was a, a, a really fun one, a big one. Robert's Will is, is also a big thing. The Pink Letter is another one that's huge. It's still in progress, really. So, yeah, the latter is a good example, and particularly the Pink Letter, because of all the debate and theorizing that's, that happens. Um... Uh, Unlike the pink letter, we may not get answers on this one, whereas we probably will get some answers on the pink letter, but maybe not. We'll have to wait and see. Anyway, let's talk about the mystery letter, starting with quotes. It was then that Princess Daria presented the king with a sealed letter from her father. For your eyes only, your grace. King Aegon read Prince Nymor's words in open court, stone-faced and silent, while seated on the Iron Throne. When he rose afterward, men said, his hand was dripping blood. He burned the letter and never spoke of it again. But that night, he mounted Balerion and flew off across the waters of Blackwater Bay to Dragonstone upon its smoking mountain. When he returned the next morning, Aegon Targaryen agreed to the terms proposed by Nymor. Soon thereafter, he signed a treaty of eternal peace with Dorne. To this day, no one can say with certainty what might have been in Diria's letter. So the order of events here is very worth taking into account. If we're really trying to break this down. We should, we got to hyperfixate on the order of events and other things like that. The way it's written, it sounds as if the Dornish envoys first asked for peace. And then after hearing the strong outcry against it, then gave the message over. It wasn't like they just handed all the stuff over at once. There was a little bit of a timing plan here. Like they maybe weren't fully, maybe there was still a chance they weren't going to give this letter over. Or maybe had a different letter to give depending Ooh, on the response. A set of letters and depending on which the, the reaction give. Yeah, I, I hadn't considered that's a great, uh, that's a great possibility. And they may, yeah, so they may have been reluctant as we'll show. Uh, also known that, note that the private message was very publicly delivered. Right. He it says he read it in open court. They gave him the option to say it out loud. They gave him the option to, you know, share it. They probably suspected he wouldn't. But I don't know. We don't know everyone. But everyone knows Aegon got a private message and that it affected him emotionally, that he he had a strong, extreme reaction to it. Something that isn't typical for him. He is stone faced, composed, calm, doesn't seem to be a guy that yells or just projects a lot of emotion in general. Just a very controlled person. Stoic. Stoic, say. yes. The perfect word for him. Now, we looked this up to be sure, and it's not 100% clear still. Sean, I know you still have some doubt here. I think it's pretty clear that he was gripping the throne, but I can see the interpretation that he gripped the letter so tight. The problem with that is how can he read it if he's gripping it so tight? 
that it's making him bleed. Yeah, well, it could be that after he read it, he just suddenly clenched his hands and his nails dug and he just sat there for a moment kind of processing it. I don't know, maybe that stretch, but it's also weird to me that he wouldn't need to grip the iron phone thrown very hard to cut himself. People just accidentally cut themselves on it all the time. They right? would so if he's wearing it... armor, which he would be because of all the assassins. That's pretty yeah, well documented yeah, at this point. Yeah, yeah. So I think that that would yeah. explain he pierced through his gauntlet or whatever. He gripped it so hard that his hand went there. Maybe he's just wearing thick leather gloves. Either way. Also, like, how yeah. would it be noted that his hand was bleeding if he had armor? Not impossible, but it would have to be bleeding a decent amount. Which is also not very likely for your fingernails, though. Like, if your own, like, yeah, how true. is it gushing yeah. blood if it's just your fingernails? So, also, I, he might be wearing armor, but not be wearing gauntlets. He might have a breastplate and sure, yeah, you know, that's yeah. true. Yeah, but part of my and again, this is you know, I mean, this is what we're doing. We're kind of nitpicking this, but just in the it's a slightly different quote in the world of ice and fire. It says. Princess, and just the, this phrasing is what made me initially, because I read this first too, so it's what got the idea planted in my mind that he gripped the sword. It says, Princess Daria placed in his hands a private letter from her father, Prince Nymor. Aegon read it upon the throne, and men say that when he rose, his hand was bleeding so hard he had clenched it. He burned the letter and departed immediately in Valerian's back for Dragonstone. So like it, like every sentence references the letter, and in one sentence it says he gripped it so hard. Yeah, so, I'm just saying that that's Because he sentence, read it upon the Iron Throne. And, the Iron Throne is right, the it so, there, I think. Yeah, that, I that's, think then so. he clarifies that he that's burned why I think it's the letter. It doesn't say yeah. he burned it afterwards. He doesn't con- continue that with the same it. And then he reestablishes what the subject is. Anyway, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Let's, not, let's not get hung up on that. <laughs> it is symbolically maybe better for him to cut it on the I Iron think so, throne, too. I think so. that's another <laughs> argument for it. Yes, absolutely. Because yeah. it is... He's the man that decided a king should not rest easy. He designed this throne. So it is. it is does say a lot more if he was so emotionally overwrought that even the man who knows this is a dangerous chair cut, himself, cut himself on, on it. it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you, were you going to say something, Ashaya? That. That. Okay, cool. All Just right. That. <laughs> I think that you have to cut, you have to look through to the significance of it, the symbolism. And yeah, like it just is better for it to be the throne. Yeah, I agree. I, Either I way, know. though, we agree that it's a strong emotional reaction. That's like whether he gripped the throne or the letter, it was intense. Here is what the text suggests as possibilities. Quote. Some claim it was a simple plea from one father to another. Heartfelt words that touched King Aegon's heart. Others insist it was a list of all those lords and noble knights who had lost their lives during the war. Certain septons even went so far as to suggest that the missive was ensorcelled, that it had been written by the Yellow Toad before her death, using a vial of Queen Rhaenys' own blood for ink, so that the king would be helpless to resist its malign magic. Grand Maester Clegg, who came to King's Landing many years later, concluded that Dorne no longer had the strength to fight. Driven by desperation, Clegg suggested, Prince Nymor might have threatened that, should his peace be refused, he would engage the faceless men of Bravos to kill King Aegon's son and heir, Queen Rhaenys's boy, Aenys, then but six years old. It may be so, but no man will ever truly know. Thus ended the First Dornish War, 4 to 13 A.C. Let the record show that Aziz and I grimaced at each of these potential explanations. <laughs> yes, yeah. If you're not watching a video, we were just like, yeah, I don't know about that. Shaking yeah. our heads. Some of these theories are terrible, really. They're just kind of like, uh, and these theories are old. Like, 
not just the the one suggested here, but in the fandom, because again, this started with the world of ice and fire in 2014, not with fire and blood in 2018. Fire and blood fired it back up again, uh, and fire and blood was was more widely read. So in some ways, this was a, a, a bigger call to action to think about this. R- regardless, yeah, we can we can clearly discard some of these theories. And add a few that aren't mentioned, perhaps. But yeah, the whole simple plea from one father, like, please, that is, there's no chance that this is what caused Aegon to grip the, it's like, oh my God, what have I done? Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, I really, a list of all the lords and knights who had lost their lives also. He's like, really? John of Ent died and all these other guys? I can't believe it. This changes everything. Yeah, like, no. (laughs) Like, this is the man who torched 4,000 men on the field of fire. He's pretty well aware. He's, like, putting names to it. I really don't think that changes a damn thing. My question is, uh, were Visenya and Aenys, do you think, at Dragonstone or at King's Landing? Probably, well, Visenya would be at King's Landing a lot because she she weighed in on this, and it's kind of unlikely that Aenys would be separate from them. So I think Aenys was there. Because it's said that Aegon had him around a lot. and Yeah. Um, yeah. I think they'd want to keep an eye on him, raising him to be at court and all that. But it's a good question. And it is possible that he showed up in a hurry. Like, if, mm-hmm. if, if he didn't know Mary was coming and was on Dragonstone, he might have come over quick in armor. But without <laughs> his son, it might be a dangerous scenario to bring his son into. That's true. He did say... We do know that he spent roughly half his time on Dragonstone. So it's very entirely possible that that's the case. But he would have probably known... Quarter of his time. Oh, quarter of his time. A quarter of his time at Dragonstone, quarter of his time at King Landing, half his time on the road. You're right. I'm sorry. Half of his time not on the road was on Dragonstone. Yes, that is much more accurate. Uh, So, but he would have known that the delegation was on its way. They didn't, it wouldn't have just shown up nowhere out of nowhere, I don't think. Well, is that a reason why the Aenys would be a Dragonstone and not at King's Landing or anything? No, but it's a reason Aegon would be. And and Aenys probably would be too, but maybe not. I'm just saying that's probably Aegon would have already been there because he would have known they were coming. Yeah, I guess my question is just things that he would have wanted to check on at Dragonstone or or people to speak to at Dragonstone. Oh, after that, reading the letter. After okay. reading the letter, right. that he would have yeah. gone home to, to talk to Visenya, who actually was there, not at King's Landing, or to make sure that Aenys is, in fact, safe. Visenya or, was definitely at court. Yeah, she okay. weighed in on, on um, the letter. Or he would have gone there because he was worried about a stash of dragon eggs or something that they told, some some knowledge that Rainey's let slip about something they had at Dragonstone that he wanted to go check on. Mm, some sort of, yeah, some sort of, that. that's that's one of the po- possibility, possible clues is that they, Rainey's said something thoughts. that Aegon would, would want to go refer to. Yeah, that, it's, that's possible, like a phrase or some sort of something they, they knew about. Yeah, that's definitely possible. Either way, the... Idea that sending his own daughter, Nymor sending his own daughter as an envoy, he may have thought that would carry more weight. He's like, look, I'm I'm taking a risk. I'm it's part of the peace process as we both make compromises, and I'm my my own daughter, my own heir is here with you. You know, you've got her. You know, you can treat her with honor or not, but I'm taking the risk and and staying sticking this out. And yeah, getting to the theory, I think it's crucial for any theory to work. It has to explain Aegon's extreme reaction. And yeah, and Sean, maybe a few other things. But to me, that's the most important. It has to explain the gripping the throne or or his own hand to to the point where he's openly bleeding. If it doesn't explain that, it's not a good theory. (laughs) That's the thing that matters most to me. I agree with that, but I do think other things that matter are it has to prompt him to not take Daria hostage and it has to prompt him to go to Dragonstone. I think those are two other things that happen that need explanation. Not as much as the extreme reaction, especially because both those things 
could have a lot of potential answers or less potential answers of why he would have this emotional reaction. Yeah, I mean, I'm saying like we don't know Aegon's personality enough that you could justify a lot of things. There's certain personality types that doesn't take a lot for them to go fly off and be alone and yeah he just wants to go think yeah Yeah. it might not be as drastic of an action for him as we think he might there might have been lots of times where someone brought him something and he just like left and went to think about it alone Mm -hmm. you know like it might not be that unusual for Aegon. and to be clear i don't like this theory but if it was some sort of magic that could explain it you know what i mean that is a possible explanation for a weird emotional reaction if there was some sort of magic involved but yeah but it doesn't seem like a strong theory i agree but before we get into the magic theory let me say i don't really think it's a big deal that he didn't take her hostage i don't think anything needs that needs to be explained that's a standard treatment of envoys which is like we really need an explanation for that well you normally know but in this case when everyone at court thought it was the right thing to do maybe hmm. like i feel like Not this everyone is an unusual at court. scenario <laughs> most people all the senior people yeah. all the people advising him everyone had the uh, i don't know position to speak out right the most sure. senior trusted experienced whatever people they all thought it so yeah a lot of the senior people are like look honor is out the window we're doing war crimes we're doing we're doing what we need to do this, this war. <laughs> well well that's 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 the thing that i wonder is was it something in this letter that made him be this way no because he already said that before reading the letter ahead of time. he didn't that's read true. the letter first yeah. he said that immediately yeah. before reading the letter yeah, yeah. so uh anyway the ensorcelled thing, yeah, I'm definitely down on that. Like you said, it's not a great explanation because that's one of those like, well, it could be anything. Like, well, we can't trust anything. It's going to be magic. The fact that George wrote it the way he did also really throws cold water on it because he has certain septons. These are people who have no expertise in magic whatsoever. These aren't the people. If, it, if this theory came from the Citadel, I'd take it more seriously because that's coming from a place that has knowledge of magic. But these are just septons making crap up. You know, that's that's how it's worded to me. So I'm like, nah. Yeah. Like you say, it's a fantasy setting, so we can't 100 percent dismiss it. But I think it's written as a to be dismissed, just as the fringe opinions from the right. equivalent of the weekly world news. Like, let's record that because why not? You know, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm tempted to give it some small chance of potential because it was a thing that was thought to be suggested at all. Right. Just just that is something. But it, but like you said, I think that it's George is including it as a thing to be dismissed. Yeah, so. I, I think there's a nice uh, suggestion from Leah Rubenfeld in the in the chat right now mm. that makes this kind of magic adjacent. If it was something about his prophecy about Aegon's prophecy, for example, the idea Absolutely. like that is magic adjacent in some ways. Um, but just the idea that they had Rhaenys alive enough that she told them sensitive information and that maybe even that relates to him wanting to go to dragonstone to check something who knows but regardless that that would be enough to to bring him back to earth (laughs) yeah i think that i had supposed that before that that might be one reason why Aegon kept pushing this war is because he had seen something in a vision that made him think he was supposed to do it like that all the kingdoms have to be united to do this so whatever the losses were he just kept going anyway because he thought he had to and I wasn't thinking in these terms yet, but maybe that was something in the letter was something to just prove that or look at it a different way or Rainey's had her own or Daria had her, her own vision or some other person, you know, I don't know. But. The idea that he signed an eternal peace with Dorne is an interesting thing to consider in light of that. He maybe was giving yeah. up forever on the idea. Not that that was upheld by either side, but at the time he might have been conceding the idea that Dorne needed to be controlled for that prophecy to be fulfilled or that maybe he had 
conceded to the idea that it would be hundreds of years still so that he he wasn't concerned. Or that it doesn't require conquest for Dorne to join. We can have peace forever and you still might join us. Right. Okay. Yes. As long as they're like allies, as long as they work together, it could still, that's a good point. Yeah. I like that. Now let's move on to the faceless man suggestion, which comes from the Grand Maester Clegg, which it's also pointed out that Grand Maester Clegg was not a part of this. He he's writing after the fact. This is many years later. He has no personal information here. Maybe he saw some notes or got books from other sources that were relevant. But this is just an a theory that came along later, which already throws a little costs it a few points. I think now it's not a terrible idea. It's just like like it's better than the magic idea because unlike magical pages we know the faceless men exist (laughs) that's a real thing for sure that's a specific form of magic that's real and we've seen them kill and they're really good at it it's definitely a flawed idea though because like why didn't they do this before why wait for miria to die to try this and there had been so many assassinations on both sides anyway just apparently not with faceless men is it possible that miria was just like really vindictive and just was torturing rainies and was like no i just want to torture this woman i don't want (laughs) to Yeah. I don't know. Like It's possible. Like, the Ullers are like, we're it. not giving her up. We're yeah. <laughs> like if, if, and Miria was agreed, they were all like, no, we want to like torture this woman. Yeah. I don't know. And, they, and they're not going to tell anyone that they have her? Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> they'll just ruin, like, then they'll come attack them. Yeah. They know they have her. I don't know. I mean, like, it's messed up to think about someone just wanting to do that, but that's definitely possible for people to just be that cruel yeah maybe miria didn't like the uh, maybe she was opposed to the idea for some reason like she just thought killing uh, maybe like she liked assassination she's fine with that but she's like well doran is not going to assassinate a baby you know that's we're not going to be known for that that's too far even for war crimes you know to <laughs> situation she might also just be against the idea of using a faceless man for assassinations we'll do it ourselves yeah that's possible. Another, uh, although, uh, you know, another potential, you know, maybe it hadn't been considered yet by her or anyone, but th- the worse it got, the less of a cost it is for Dorn to employ the faceless men. Mm-hmm. So that yes. might be one reason they That's didn't true. do it sooner because they're finally at the point where, well, it doesn't matter anyway now. Their you know, relative, so. giving up two thirds of everything you own has become a very yeah. small amount. <laughs> if you point. have $3 million <laughs> and you have to give up $2 million, and I don't know about that, but if you have $30 and you have to give up 20 all right. 20 done, bucks you know, to assassinate so. a prince? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great deal. Act now before, while supplies last. Yeah, uh, and but but think about how Aegon handles threats. He's he downplays them. He's like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not worried about that. Like Visenya had to cut his face to get him to agree to make the King's Guard. Like after multiple times they had been attacked in the streets and lords have been sad. He's still like, nah, we're fine. We can tough it out. I don't want to be weak about it. Like let them come, you know. So so to for him to grip the throne or the message to make his hand bleed at a threat doesn't really add up for me and i think just in general even the threat of the faceless man which he might take more serious than other threats it still seems a little much the one the way he reacted and two well i guess maybe there would still be a reason for him to fly to dragonstone yeah if it was a faceless man threat like like if anies was still at dragonstone he would go check or and the letter is like as i go crap let me go make sure anies is safe you know but it didn't say he brought him back with him either right that wasn't no, it didn't, didn't yeah yeah I think he was probably just there at court anyway, but yeah, it's that does make sense as an option. I'm, I certainly wouldn't be so sure that I would say, nah, that theory couldn't possibly be it. Yeah. But so the uh, so the this suggestion that was made when she 
crash when Meraxes was shot down is that she was still alive, that they kept her alive to torture her or to use her as leverage. Now, the weird thing would be, well, why did they wait so long to use this as leverage? But it's still, that's not like a deal breaker, not a theory breaker idea. It's like, well, there's plenty of reasons why. They I mean, didn't they might want him to, to know. or They might have wanted to break her for information, too. They like, were trying they to get something yeah, out of her. Yeah, they were yeah, trying might to have taken it's a, while. a while. She's strong, and they, she didn't break for a long time. And that is a fairly good explanation. I think that at least could address this possible flaw in the idea. And it could also just be the change in leadership. Like, Maria didn't want to do use this tactic at all she didn't want to use the rainy says alive tactic or whatever and nymore was willing to for whatever differences of opinion they might have had behind the scenes i don't know what it is but i really like the idea of there being like something on dragonstone that rainy's told them about you know like i mean my my weird little headcanon is because i i don't know i guess because of daemon having stuff to do with like hatching dragons i just like the idea mm. of there being like dragon hatchery and like mm. a store of dragon eggs or something and rainy's told them where the dragon eggs are and he goes and he's like okay yeah like i i need to stop this for that reason i don't know yeah it's possible sean what do you think about the uh, how do you, do you think it's plausible that they could have kept it a secret that she was alive that is that a flaw or maybe flaw i quote this all the time Benjamin Franklin said that three people can keep a secret if two of them are dead. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's plausible, but I think it's highly unlikely because one, any random witness to the dragon falling from the sky, any of the soldiers, anyone that was present for that is likely to have also seen that she was still alive or taken hostage or something. I think that would have been a crowd gathering moment when the dragon gets shot down. And the likelihood of there being dozens of witnesses to see that she was she survived that somehow is like, maybe not. Maybe only three people saw it, and none of them saw whether she lived. Still, someone had to go out there and get her body, bring it in. Was mm -hmm. it a Lord Oler himself, or did someone bring it to Lord Oler in secret? And four and Lord no Ullers Oler saw like four Lord Ullers were assassinated, which implies that there were people that were maybe willing to talk around him like if they're willing to kill him then yeah they could spill the beans about rainies now one argument against what you're saying it's not a full argument against it's just like it's a counterpoint semi-counterpoint is that the hellhole's pretty isolated it's in the middle of the desert yeah, mm -hmm. so it's a little easier to control information in a place like and that. the dornish population is scattered about yeah. hiding from dragon flames you know I, again i do think that there is some convoluted way it's possible but 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 it does maria know Maybe that's why Mary didn't do anything because she didn't know because that would be another person who has to know if they send a messenger and a messenger has to tell someone mm. and then Mary has to not tell Mary and that messenger have to not tell anyone else. Yeah. But I yeah. think there's two things there. One, yeah, some of that time could have just spent like she's imprisoned by the Ullers. Mary doesn't know for one year of that. And then she finds out and then there's a transfer that takes some time and then she, she then... And then Rainey's is held somewhere else for the rest of that time, one. Yeah. Two, the Ullers could have never had control of her, and they immediately handed her over, which explains how four Ullers could die and Rainey's And secret could be held. Be so, held. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is that they never actually kept her that whole time. She was in a dungeon. She was held captive. Any other place. Like, it doesn't have to be the Hellhold. So I agree, Sean. There's a, there's this, a little bit of trouble in it keeping it a secret. Now, they may have wanted to keep it a secret because they would have been maybe afraid that allowing Aegon to know that he was she was alive might have... They might have been worried that he would go even harder. Like, he would burn Sunspear. He would actually use Balerion to destroy castles like he had Harrenhal instead of just 
messing them up really badly. You know, like he could go harder than he had. And they were like, they maybe have been wary of that. I think that's what he would have done. Yeah, I think it's entirely possible. And if we bring that forward to now, to in the moment, to at court, that explains potentially why they didn't just lead with this. Because they were worried that his reaction would be to kill them, to just throw them in jail, to murder them in in madness, like in in despair or in in suffering. You know, he's like, "You did this to my my beloved." Off with their heads, or I'm going to do the same to you. So yeah, that explains a lot of their hesitation. Why they didn't just give him the letter? Why they maybe why Miria didn't want to enact this plan at all? You know, because she predicted that nah, he's just going to go harder. He's going to just kill the envoys. Like, what's the point? I'm not sending someone there to die for a message that will be received like that. Maybe she was, it turns out maybe that she was wrong. Maybe. Yeah. And sending the, the heir apparent to die. Also, yeah. Right. Like Risky. not just a messenger, but like this key important person. So I think it's this a pretty huge point. Theory. Yeah. Go ahead. This is what I think. I think that Rainey's, if she survived, she didn't survive very long. Mm. They may have captured her and or tortured her, but I don't think they held her for years or transferred her to Sunspring or anything like that. But I think they might have gotten information from her that only she could know, mm-hmm. right? Or pretty much only she could know. that, And that that information might have been slow moving. It might have been kept under wraps or been hard to transfer to Maria. Maria may have never found out. But eventually someone does find out. Nymore finds out. And he realizes that this could be a threat. That they can make an imminent threat, right? Like not, we'll get you or will torture Rainey's, the threat could be that based on information they got from her, they found a secret passage into Dragonstone mm. and put a scorpion into Aenys's bed. Sure. Or a secret passage into where the dragon's eggs are kept. And they know it's, it's just some demonstration that we can get you. Yeah, it's not the idea. We'll give this information it's to the It's not the specific idea, someone, yeah. It's right, the... we have someone there right now now mm. right now someone is in dragonstone with a poison dagger mm. and you might go catch him he might not kill Annie's right now because he happened to be at court but we can do it again mm-hmm. and we know because rainy's told us how to get through this passage or does that some other does this still cause an extreme reaction does this this is still a threat though that i don't think yeah. he would respond to a threat with an emo with emotional being overcome i think that it's because it, it, what he'll go through in his head is it only I can stop this, and I have to right now. No one else can. I can't sail a ship to Dragonstone. But, but would he first, react that strongly right? before confirming the threat is real? Just at the letter, like such, like but this is a stoic man. It? This is a stoic man. The only way to confirm it is to go there and see if the poison dagger is in the crib or if this whatever you see what i'm saying like he's oh gotta so go you go to see quick. that we left this item there to prove well how's that different right. than the faceless man threat though like the faceless so men are going to be able to a long term thing that might happen eventually but the faceless men are so make certain a plan for or defend mm. against or there's no like, defending against. Well, is, or... is there though there's really no defense against the faceless men i i don't i i've yeah. i'm partly with you on this one i like the idea of a concealed like a, a thing that proves they can a- get this level of access but i think that's already there i think that's already there with the face and i, I think that Aegon so just doesn't we, respond to that so we take it back to the prophecy angle on it the idea that they also kept ratings for a while whatever got information from her but the information intersected with something to do with prophecy and to do with how Doran would be brought into the realm? 
I, which is I, what we talked I, about a bit before the idea that like yeah. if there was something that was like you in your vision you saw Dorne as being brought in the realm but actually Rhaenys has had some dream she also dreams and she saw that Dorne won't be in the realm for a hundred years what you know yeah or or maybe they saw that it had to do with a red comet and Aegon's like oh there's some comet in the writings the carvings on the wall at Dragonstone Maybe there's like a calendar and he's like, oh, it's not going to be for 200 years. Well, there were, to be fair, there were lots of other comets before that one. That wasn't the first one. Yeah, like there was one in Rhaegar's time too. Yeah, yeah. But anyway. um, Although still, way, way, way later. Long enough. Well, there would have been others, I think, too. I'm just saying that wasn't the only one. The idea, though, being that there was some sort of prophecy-related information that would make Aegon realize he doesn't need to press this right now, right here. And that there was something to corroborate that and what he was, yeah. Yeah, that's possible. I like that, but I still don't know if that gives the same clench your fist to bleeding point. That's why yeah. I think it all has to come back to Rainey's being alive. I think it's the only thing that works. It's the only thing that would cause that kind of emotional... And so, okay, here's my thought, is that what would Rainey's... What would they have had to say for if Rainey's is alive at the point of that letter? I can't... I don't know what secret words... What, what if it's what, her what handwriting? Say, yeah, well, I guess, what does she have to say in that letter to convince uh, Aegon to not come try to that she's alive her, to kill that's, the invoice right now well that to... wouldn't save her though like they yeah. he, he has no way to save her that that's clear like if he's been if he's unaware she's even alive for this couple of years and she's down in some dungeon and what way well, he has no means of saving her it's just not possible yeah, so then why they would the war if you can't save her anyway because they're offering to put her out of her misery in exchange mm. that's the deal they're saying we're we'll stop torturing her we'll put her out of her misery we won't let her live in pain again if you end the war that's the deal and I know it's just really hard to find another another explanation that settles that, that settles, checks off all probably, the boxes. That's better, I think, than pretty much all the others. But I still have this big problem with I don't I don't think that stuff. I don't I think he would change his mind. He'd be like, wait, what? Seize Daria, chop her hand, chop everyone's hand off, put her in jail, send an Owen Void to Dorne. Send Why would you we'll be so sure? Back. Like, what evidence does do you have that Egon would ever behave that way? He's guess, never well, done I, anything like well, that. Well, my my question is. Like put her out of her misery is it's put her out of her misery now better than some slim but unlikely chance that you actually manage to rescue I I don't know no uh, yeah. not if she's like broken and and horribly disfigured and just suffering anyway and there's there's she's gonna suffer no matter what I know but I just it's it can be hard to communicate the severity of that to Aegon in a letter if and she wrote the letter that's why i'm saying she, that's why i'm saying if she wrote it it's her handwriting then he would yeah, believe yeah, yeah. whatever's written well, and I, if it I says look I, i'm in I, ma- i'm suffering i'm in horrible pain please end this i don't and i'm also saying that it's also perfectly reasonable and within the line of believability for someone to hear your partner say that know that your partner said that and still be like she's being too noble like i actually do think i can save her like it's yeah that's not how it played out but i'm just saying like it is possible that he would see all of that believe that it's her and still be like no i'm gonna save her which is why they which explains why they didn't just go for this option right away which explains why miria wasn't for this idea because you can she could see it not working yeah also miria might not have known this is an option i want to keep that in mind too right, she might right. not have known that rain is even still alive but um some loose ends to this is it how can he be certain that they will comply a 
And if they don't comply, he can just go right fly, jump back on Balerion and attack them again. There's nothing stopping him from doing comply. that. How does he know that they put her out of misery or not? Yeah, he doesn't. Did no he does boy come later and say, he hey, doesn't. we did it. Did they deliver the body? Because we never get the body yeah. back. Yeah, no. And he goes on with the rest of his reign. Like maybe secretly it was delivered later. We never found that out. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? No, that is like, I think that's a hole in this. Sure. It's yeah. still, I think, is better than the others. Maybe the faceless man might be better, but no, I don't think thing, the faceless two man other is better. Two really things don't. here. Fox and Bramble says maybe the letter was in Valyrian, which is a nice angle to it as well. Like, there's plenty of people who can write Valyrian, but I like that. Two, uh, Liet Rubenfeld says perhaps she was alive for longer than he thought, which is what we were talking about, but was dead by the time of the letter. Basically. I'm not sure that would stop him. I don't know how that would move him if he was dead. If, unless if he didn't know that. Words, if, she, if, if it they was lied. her final wishes or something yeah. and he respected her actual final wishes or something like that. Yeah. Uh, the other reason I really think it's the best idea is that it gets into one of the central themes of A Song of Ice and Fire, which none of the other theories do even remotely, which is love versus duty. His duty is to this prophecy. His duty is to fulfill the prophecy, but he loves Rhaenys more than that. And he is not the one, quote unquote, one in 10,000 that Maester Aemon said to John. You're like, my father would always do what's honorable. Well, then your father was one man in 10,000. Most people will do, will choose love over duty. Most people will do this and that. And so Aegon is just like, he's not the one in 10,000, which is very George R. R. Martin, right? He says, yes, he chooses love over duty. And doesn't tell anyone then they don't know <laughs> so there's no I, there's no way for them to know that that he did that made that choice because he hasn't even revealed the prophecy to people so they he why he couldn't possibly reveal that thing if he hasn't revealed the prophecy he can't reveal his logic behind fulfilling it or not i just thought of yet another problem what's that say he's like okay fine i'll stop the war as long as you stop torturing her and and maybe they'd sent some evidence also you got to consider why they would keep want all this to be secret not a public announcement and and i can see why that might be but and so maybe that explains why later secretly they deliver the remains somehow but my problem is after that then he'd be like all right let's go back to war send the dragon why, why would he do that why would he do that sean he's honorable at every turn he's proven he keeps his word this is not his yeah, personality okay, yeah, this doesn't point. fit yeah. his his method his modus operandi like he's not that kind of guy he's not like i will make a deal so that i can break it later he yeah. doesn't do that. Like, there's no, there's just nothing, there's no precedent for that in his behavior. Okay, so, but what, yeah, so it does beg a question. Was it a threat? Was it like, if you, we'll put her out of her misery, if you agree. If you don't, we'll keep torturing her. So it's not just a yes, it's over, or no, it's not. It's a, she's going to continue to suffer horribly if you don't. So I think a threat is part of it. It's not just we have her, it's we're going to keep harming her. She's going to suffer for a long more time. Yeah, and yeah, you you're right to so show that... You're confident that you could never find her to stop it yourself, I guess. Well, I mean, look at what happened when they tried to send an army. Like, Valerian yeah, yeah, alone wouldn't do it. Like, you can't, like, you got to get down there in the dungeon. And this, you, this, takes, this is a commando raid say type that thing. It speaks a lot to Aegon's personality and to what could be said there. Because, like, a lot of people in that situation would be headstrong about that and think that they could stop it themselves. Yeah. Whether it was wise or accurate, yeah. they would still be determined to try. Some yeah. people Which like, might be oh. why he went and thought about it for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. didn't react because he may have wanted to do that. And, you know, he did have the extreme reaction, but he's like, look, this is this is why he needs to go think because Aegon the Conqueror doesn't get all emotional at court. He's Aegon the Conqueror. He's stoic. And he's like in a not stoic moment there. He needs to go behind closed doors <laughs> and be emotional where people can't see it. <laughs> and, you know, another piece of this, too, because I think you even bring up the idea later of like, does he tell, does he tell anyone else? Does he tell even Visenya? Yeah, I don't know. 
he might realize he can't because she will just fly her dragon down there and burn a castle, right? Like, yeah, so she, true. Yeah, good point. That's part of what he has to process is that he has to figure this out on his own. He can't tell anyone it else. It could be a real Ned Catlin thing where Ned never told Catlin the truth about, he promised yeah. not to tell. I mean, this isn't, he didn't necessarily promise, Egon didn't necessarily make a promise. And you don't have to agree with Ned keeping that promise. But that does seem to be the reason he didn't tell Catlin is he made a promise and whatever, or was, thinks it's a risk to John or whatever. In any case, it's a similar sort of thing. And if it's a letter from Rainey's written by Rainey's and like in Valerian even or whatever, if if she wrote it to him, she she could have said, don't tell Visenya. Yeah, she could have outright said those words. She could have also been like, look, I, you know, don't do anything that's going to get my son killed. Like, you know, it's fine. Yeah, there's a lot of things she could have written that would have that would have convinced him or been like this is my dying wish or i don't know yeah, yeah. i like the idea of it just being rainy's expressing her like final wishes because i do think it parallels things in the main series of a song of ice and fire well as idiotic as i think uh people caring about dying wishes truly are uh when there's lots of alive people to think i think it worked out for the best in this case and in the worst in some in ned's case perhaps yeah so <laughs> When we talk about who's being on Dragonstone, I, I still think Anis was very likely uh, at King's Landing, but Magor might not have been. Magor, baby Magor might have been on Dragonstone. Probably not, though. He probably was with his mother, who was also probably at the Red Keep. Uh, anyway, I don't know that we have any more to add to the letter. I think that's the, the we've talked about a lot of different theories, a lot of the issues with the theories, and I think we mostly seem, we seem to agree that the, some f- formulation of the Rainis was alive thing is the best idea not necessarily we don't necessarily agree on all the particulars of of the of what would make that work but that seems to be we seem to agree that that's the best theory uh, uh category categorically or anyway i want to throw out one other part this is new for me to be considering this this might be too tinfoily but i wonder if there's a possibility that the deal was to let her live she has just has a new identity in dorn you know she just I don't know if she seems she impossible. Like she looks a, like a Targaryen. Like there's just she's just yeah. too she's silver haired, purple eyed. I don't think that works. Too too few people look like that. She's very distinct. Yeah. Everybody yeah. knows what she looks like. Um. Anyway, uh, let's see. So yeah, Vizenya may not have known. Vizenya may never have been told what was in the letter. Now, some people in Dorne knew. Maybe only Nymore himself. At least Nymore knew though. There's at least one other person who knew it was in the letter, but probably more. Like Diria may not have known. It was he may he may have sealed the letter and been like, give this letter to the king. No one else is gonna read it. Maybe his maester knew. Maybe his maester wrote the thing down, he dictated it, but maybe he just personally wrote it himself. Who knows? This is another problem with us not having the Dornish point of view. This is fire and blood, not a book called Unbowed, Unbent, and Broken. If it was, well, uh, we would know a lot more about this, I think. And yeah, there might be people that pass down this information, just like you know, the Targaryens passed down the prophecy, you know, kind of secretly. Maybe the, the Dornish kept some of this song. It wouldn't be as important. This isn't some important state secret to keep later. Like, yeah, we had Rainies back in the day. It was it really that was true. Like, what would that matter now? You know, yeah. <laughs> we, especially since it the Targaryens for a generation or two. It would have mattered yeah. for fifty years. That's know? true, but not not when the Targaryens have fallen <laughs> many years later. Yeah. yeah. There's also some Ashara Dane vibes here. I mentioned Ned and Catelyn, but just to fulfill that a little more, you have an important character whose death is fairly certain, yet the circumstances are very mysterious. And you have a powerful man who loved that person that won't talk about it, that keeps it all to themselves. And yet there are some people in Doran that probably have answers. Just like there's Nymore and maybe some other people know what's in that letter. 
There's a few people in Dorne that know about the Tower of Joy, or at least have some additional information. Whether it's Willa, or other members of House Dane. There's a few people that know. Hal and Reed, yeah. And in both cases, there's a child involved. And death by falling. Or maybe death by falling. In both cases, we don't know if they died by falling. Yeah, or, yeah. Anyway, yes. And they both have purple eyes. <laughs> there you go, there you go. Sorry, I want to say there's might be a, a little... Uh... Lord of the Rings play here. Yeah. The, uh, it may be so, but no man will truly ever know. Talking about what's in the letter. Oh, yeah, yeah. No man, but maybe some woman will know. Maybe some <laughs> woman, yeah. <laughs> in fact, yeah, so Nina says uh, we should not expect to ever get an answer for this, and I agree. It's not, it's not part of A Song of Ice and Fire, so I, I kind of doubt we'll ever get a true answer. But that's fine. We shouldn't have all the answers. We, you know, it's fun to have things that we just get to debate and talk about. Well, I guess if they did this, if they did like the season or about Aegon the Conqueror yeah, it, uh, on TV, whether the argument would be how accurate if they just came up with their own solution it would it would it would come down to whether George told the creator yeah that'll be a whole other topic they could have just come up just, with, it yeah. plays out like that and we never still we don't know what's yeah, in the letter still yeah, not ever know in, in, yeah they could show it and keep it a mystery on screen there's a lot of options but, but they wouldn't be able to keep Rainey's yeah. as being alive or not a mystery I don't think no I guess you're right that would be too hard to like on TV that would be very unsatisfying to just like keep us yeah. in the dark about whether she was alive or not yeah yeah and also, I don't really know where I think of the uh, Aegon the Conqueror arc ending, like TV wise. Like, yeah, where the maybe around this is. part. Maybe around <laughs> here. Like, it's, it's just peace from here I on would for next see 20 years. Around later, here. Yeah. So, yeah, anyways, uh, <laughs> I, I think if this is revisited, it'll be on screen and not in the text. Yes. And in this context, we can accept it as an interesting, mysterious footnote. But if they made a show about it, it would be like, an unanswered climactic moment, you know. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. Yeah. Sure they couldn't leave this unaddressed in the show. I've been looking into some of the ingredients in Magic Mind because when you hear that something's going to improve your brain functions, you know, you want to get some evidence for that. It's a pretty big claim. And I want to highlight Bacopa monnieri. It's a plant that grows pretty much on every continent. Not Antarctica. I don't know if you really need to clarify that these days. I think you should say, yeah, even Antarctica when that matters, but otherwise, no. And it has a background in Ayurvedic traditional medicine with the claim that improves memory and other assorted brain functions, which again is a pretty big claim. And traditional medicine isn't always accurate, but here's where it gets interesting. Yeah, there's been... You know, so many people in India and Asia use it. There's a, a big sample size and they've done some research and there's something to it. It does seem to have some actual uh, effects. And uh, it, it's the type of thing also that might be hard to measure because apparently it takes about two weeks for it to like, I don't know, kick into gear in your system. Yeah. And they are, these are systematic reviews on Bacopa Monnieri that we're talking about, which is the highest level of research. If you're looking at something from a research perspective, you have like a pyramid and the top of the pyramid is systematic reviews. That's the highest level of trust. So we're not talking about just anecdotal evidence and traditional medicine. We're talking about top of the line science, y'all. <laughs> so, and you know, I mentioned kind of anecdotally, you know, that this is much less scientific, but I probably could make it scientific, 
I'm drinking less sodas. I've only noticed it because I just realized I'm just putting less cans into the recycling. But uh, I can maybe get more scientific and figure out how many I was drinking before and how many I'm drinking now. But I, I will say, I feel like I have more uh, more focus in the gym, get less tired in the gym, and I am drinking less soda. So those are two pretty big positives. Yeah, I've found it to be really effective in my daily life. I really enjoy drinking it every day. So you can go to magicmind.com slash Westeros and get up to 56% off your subscription for the next 10 days with our code Westeros20. That's Westeros20. Okay, so let's talk about our topics, Moot. That's underway on our Patreon right now. We've had three polls so far. The first one was the undead. The choices were Cold Hands, Lady Stoneheart, Lightning Lord, and the Kyborg, meaning... Robert Strong, get Gregor Clegane. The next one was Unfinished History of Westeros, where we have existing series that are not finished. And the, the choices were Nymeria's Landing, The Blood of Giants, The Wit and Wisdom of Dolorous Ed, and The Defiance of Cersei. And this, this Friday, this past Friday, that would be uh, Friday the 2nd of February, we put out a Robert's Rebellion era poll that has the topic choices, Sack of King's Landing, The Tower of Joy, The Abduction of Lyanna, and The Siege of Storm's End. So... Your fellow Westorians have been voting on these topics all week. You can join in the fun by signing up at patreon.com slash history of Westeros and choose the level pledge amount that is best for you and start getting benefits and voting in polls. Other benefits include bonus episodes and access to our scripts and shout outs, things like that. Good fun stuff. You also get the audio-only ad-free versions of these episodes um, a little bit early. Like we release these um, to pay, we release these to the public uh, Sunday nights, but you get these on Patreon f- just a few days earlier on average. So that's relevant. Yeah. If I can sway the vote, I'm rooting for the wit and wisdom that Dolores said. <laughs> I want to win. So. Right on. <laughs> no, Nymeria wins. It's looking like Nymeria's going to win that one, but it's it could happen. You know, you never know. It, it, things change. So another poll that we have coming next week to entice you all further is a poll on influences on George R. R. Martin that includes topics, a large poll that has a lot of choices. It includes such choices as H.P. Lovecraft, J.R. Tolkien, Robert E. Howard, several others. It's like eight or ten Sharon choices. Sharon K. On that Penman. List. Sharon K. Penman. Yeah, there's a lot. I, I didn't actually put the list in front of me like these other ones, but there's a lot of choices. I didn't want to list them all anyway, but a few leaving a few unknown is fun. So yeah, that'll be popping up this week. Oh, authors, by the way. Yeah. These yeah. are all just authorial influences. There's yeah. another influences poll that will be like historical influences and okay. stuff like that. Okay. So yeah, so this is just. Yeah, other no, or, yeah. And yes. each of these polls lasts the, the week uh, mm-hmm. for the past one. So you could join now. If you're listening to this, you can still join us and vote. And if you're listening to this, a year later, six months later, if it's January, February, we're probably doing the topics moot again. So this is an evergreen yes. uh, plug for you. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, we're, we're going to do a variety of styles of polls, different choices. We're going to do some brackets. This current week, we're going to have three polls where the top the two poll, two mm-hmm. topics are going to win on Monday and Wednesday each. And then they're all going to, or three, rather, three are going to win Monday and Wednesday. And then they're going to all meet at the end and for one bigger poll. Yeah, so we're we got all sorts of fun formats and and different twists and fun ways to do polling, and then we'll make episodes out of these things. So yeah, that'll be good too. We also had a little fun just looking at randomly. This is super random. We were playing with acronyms, so you all can decide which of these acronyms for dragon is the best. Let's let's read these out for you. Deadly reptile always guarding our nobility. 
That's my favorite. Or dangerous reptile always growing on nourishment. Yes, that fits because dragons keep growing as long as they eat. <laughs> I like devastatingly rare animal gathering others nearby. <laughs> <laughs> Some people who are, maybe the Dornish would agree with this one. They, when they, if they said, deadly ruler, awful, great, oppressive, nagging. <laughs> yeah, maybe not the great, but That's all those other ones. That's a great question mark. Great? No, <laughs> oppressive and nagging. <laughs> yeah, great doesn't really fit with all the others. <laughs> no. said, uh, god awful. Yeah, god awful. There we go. Awful and god awful. Yeah. <laughs> awful, <laughs> god awful. Deadly ruler, awful, god awful, oppressive, nagging. <laughs> that would be like deadly ruler, awful, god awful, oppressive, not oppressive. <laughs> yeah. In Dorn, if it was dragons plural, the S would be shunned. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. I'd love right. it if y'all would comment with your favorite acronym for a dragon. A <laughs> dragon. <laughs> so let's. Also take note that the dele delegation that, that arrived in King's Landing for the peace process brought back Meraxes' skull, which means that it wasn't a small delegation. <laughs> they would have had a large cart with that, or if it was by ship, that might make even more sense. We first see Meraxes' skull in Tyrion's memories in, I think, his first chapter in A Song of Ice and Fire, maybe it's his second, when he thinks of being down there in its presence. And it's obviously smaller than Beleriand's, and, and Meraxes alone is enough to inspire awe in him. Must have been quite a sight, though, seeing a delegation carting that thing up. So when, when Nina pointed out earlier that Lord Orys may have discovered or found out that a delegation was coming, this is part of why they might have, he might have found out. It's very, well, it's quite a spectacle with a skull and all that, yeah. And compare John Aaron going to Sunspear early in Robert's reign to with the bones of Lewin Martell, Prince Lewin Martell, to put things at ease because the Red Viper was stirring some things up with Viserys and maybe, you know, continuing the war. So this was a way to tamp things back down. And yeah, I remember I mentioned that the eternal peace with signed by Aegon was not particularly held up by either side. We pointed out many of Aegon's descendants would just pick a fight with Dorne, but Morion Martell would as well pick a fight with Seven Kings. Not really much of one since Jaehaerys found out about it and <laughs> the ships were all burned so you know <laughs> that's why we call him Moron Martell um, but yeah moving on to the legacy of Myria we've got the legacy of Myria and the legacy of Rhaenys for the rest of this episode let's have a quote to start it off the yellow toad of Dorne had done what Hair in the Black the two kings and Torrin Stark could not she had defeated Aegon Targaryen and his dragons Yet, north of the Red Mountains, her tactics earned her only scorn. Dornish courage became a mocking name for cowardice amongst the lords and knights of Aegon's kingdoms. The toad hops into her hole when threatened, wrote one scribe. Another said, Myria fought like a woman with lies and treachery and witchery. The Dornish victory, if victory it was, was seen to be dishonorable, and the survivors of the fight and the sons and brothers of those who had fallen promised one another that another day would come, and with it, a reckoning. Their vengeance would need to wait for a future generation, and the accession of a younger, more bloodthirsty king. So this is a good example of copium. Copious amounts of copium. 
Another way to put it is excuses, excuses. They lost and they're salty about it. So they denigrate the winners. And yes, it was a victory. There's a victory in quotes. And if a victory it was. The objective was to prevent the Targaryens from conquering their country. And they did it. Clear bias by the author Maester here. They, they absolutely the Dornish won. That was totally a Dornish victory. It doesn't mean you benefited. It doesn't mean you like did great, but it means you defeated the opponent, which they absolutely did. They wouldn't have won if they didn't win. <laughs> <laughs> to repeat the example about Vietnam, which we've brought up several times in throughout the course of this, the U.S. was also very salty about. You find people that, that today will say, "No, we didn't lose in Vietnam. No, we just it was." It just ended. <laughs> it's like, no, you didn't really accomplish your objectives. So you, you might be able to argue it was a stalemate, but you could not argue that you won. Yeah, 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 definitely. So not to simplify the comparisons, though, because the U.S. wasn't trying to conquer Vietnam either. It wasn't there's a lot of things that aren't very similar here, like, tech, you know, technology and circumstances. But still, it's a similar situation that a lot of people could identify with because, well, most of our listeners are from America and probably know people that have said similar things about the Vietnam War. If we go back to ancient times in, in the real world, it's more like a Pyrrhic victory where, you know, Pyrrhus was the aggressor in this case too, so unlike the Dornish, but it's the same kind of thing. Pyrrhus won victories but lost so many soldiers that it was like, well, if I went have another victory or two like this, I'll, I'm out of a, I don't have anything, you know? Uh, it has accidental wordplay too, because Pyrrhus literally means related to or pertaining to fire, <laughs> his name. And of course, there's a lot of that here. <laughs> and the fire is part of why it was, was such a devastating uh, victory. So Dornish courage is impressive, despite what this passage says. These these voices, these takes about if victory it was, these are from people who bent the knee after losing to Aegon. They're salty as well, because they lost... <laughs> And the Dornish didn't. <laughs> to admit Dornish courage is to admit their own loss. You know, maybe not cowardice, but their own, you know, failure. And the bloodthirsty king mentioned in the final line of that quote is, of course, Daron the first, whose war ended not unlike this one did. In failure with countless dead on both sides. After thinking they had won, they were like, oops, no, you didn't. A lot less damage done to Dornish lands under Daron the first, though, of course, because of the lack of dragons. But yeah. It says they would have to wait for a future generation. Ah, they weren't waiting. They were long dead. I mean, this is 144 <laughs> years later that that happened. So, yeah, this is, I don't know if they, I don't know how much of a grudge they still held. It's like, yeah, my grand, great, 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 great grandfather was killed in Doran. I'm going to get y'all for that. It's like, what was his name again? Oh, I don't, I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Daron, uh, <laughs> Pate, I don't know. <laughs> but you can say this is part of Miria's legacy. She led Dorne so stubbornly and well, perhaps you could say, effectively, that no one tried again as long as they had dragons, at least not effect like with any sort of real effort, you know, nothing that would that really rises to the level of true conquest attempt. And then post intention. Yeah. Is that the word you're looking for? Yeah, yeah. And then post Daron, the the attempts were really pathetic uh, you got Aegon the fourth who just wooden dragons that caught fire and set the set the king's wood on fire like that is just some weak sauce right there like talk <laughs> about a failure like if Aegon can't do it you're gonna do it with that plan I mean please so yeah you got lots of just failures and and but but most people didn't even make the attempt they're like 
Aegon the Conqueror couldn't do it, and Rhaenys died down there. Yeah, I don't want any of that. I'm not even going there. Let's not even try. And all those Baratheons got their hands chopped off. Yeah, and like the ugh. Tyrell army just disappeared. There's a lot of deterrent. Yeah. Yeah. So it took a very special person and special circumstances for for them to fire that all up again, and it still had the same result. Basically, it's like yeah, special in quotes, by the way, because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know that should have too much positive connotation. Yeah. So we and we can't know what would happen down there. A lot of other things. There's plenty of differences between the two scenarios, but they they did have similar endings. And again, we don't have the Dorna side of things. How do they remember Princess Miria? Do they look at her as the yellow toad, or do they think of that as like a positive thing? Because it's the, they called her that, but we'll own that nickname. Yeah, she was the yellow toad, but that's a good thing. They let them, you know, let, we'll own that nickname. Like Tyrion owns the, the insults leveled on him. Like, yeah, just wear it like armor. You know, yeah, she was the yellow toad. Fine, you all lost. To the yellow toad. What does that yeah. say about you? It's You're... almost worse, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. So I like that. I call it the yellow dragon killer. <laughs> yeah, the yellow toad. Well, of course we lost to the dragon killer. What were we going to do? <laughs> <laughs> the yellow toad defeats the Maraxes. I mean, yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, so I, I suspect they probably think well of her. Maybe not hero status, but maybe a leader who embodied unbowed, unbent, and broken. You know, in a, in ways that few others could. I mean, they really, truly didn't give up. I mean, that's that's living up to those words. You might connect that those two dots, like. Her leadership is the reason the Targaryens stayed out for so long. And that's if they recognize that, then, yeah, she's got to be remembered well. Like this is the person that fought the dragons and won and kept them out. And this is the reason where we were independent and free for so long. And this is the reason why we got to marry in later because they, they kept trying and kept failing. And, and Mary is the one who really showed us we could we could hold out. And we did it again later and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I got to say, though, you know, if you're born into Dorne, and, you know, this is your legacy and your hero. Sure, I guess that's what you have to be proud of. But if I was choosing, I don't want to serve under the unbowed, unbent, unbroken, let all your people die uh, <laughs> banner. Like, let me be in the growing stronger or the preparing yeah. for winter troops. It, it will, we're not trying to burn ourselves to death just to be independent. It's more <laughs> important stuff to me, at least. So. Yeah, and speaking of, like, Nymore... And later, Deria would have a huge burden to bear to help rebuild their country, right? And it was very devastating. And the other lords of Dorne as well. It wouldn't just be on them, but they would be, you know, the tip of the spear, the leaders of that. But each individual lord and each individual peasant would have to rebuild as best as they could. And a lot of that would just take multiple generations. You know, so I mean, we jumping forward in time. There, there's not a lot of us to talk about with regards to Dorne in the short term, but there will be here and there Dorne popping up for different reasons and that's something we'll have to continue or continue to consider is well, signs of how Dorne is recovering anytime we get Dornish events in the next generation or two we'll have to c wrap that up into the knowledge that this is still a country in recovery because like, I doubt even two generations would be enough for a full recovery that takes that long for some of the trees to grow back you know let alone the buildings, which <laughs> don't grow back. They have to <laughs> which require trees first. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there's not a lot of trees down there in the first place. Anyway, that's that's important. Mary's legacy benefited in a way from her dying when she did. She didn't have to be part of the recovery. She was she died at a point that was pretty poetic, right? Right at the end of the war. It's like her death is inextricably and forever tied to the end of the war. And so she never gave up and the war ended as soon as she gave out, basically. And that's that's very symbolic, too. That's that makes for a good story, I think. 
like a lot of songs, you know, when the yellow toad finally gave out the war ended. you know, it's just something cool. I, I'm not going to write the lyrics right now, but <laughs> I think you see, you can see there's a lot to work with there in terms of good songwriting material. Aziz, I want you not only to write the lyrics right now, but do it all with dragon acronyms. Yes, right? All the lyrics are dragon acronyms. <laughs> <laughs> well, we need it to be... There's no there's no yellow... There's a no wob. We can't do yellow toad and the dragon. There's no myriad. You can't... None of those fit in the acronym. Dang it. Mm. Yeah. Dragom. I didn't say it would Dragom. be easy. Dragom. <laughs> you didn't say it would be easy. <laughs> so certainly there's... Dragony. 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 <laughs> and dragons to get an S and a Y. So. Dragon yeet. Y-T. <laughs> so the style of warfare worked. You're not going to argue Doran into like, oh, you cowardice style of warfare. You guys should stop doing it that way because it's cowardly. Like, yo, this worked. We're not stopping that. <laughs> we're not going to. This is the only way you can beat dragons. We're definitely not giving this up. Even when the dragons are gone, we're going to keep doing this. Yeah. So I doubt they were too concerned about the negative opinions coming from north of the Red Mountains. They're like, yeah, keep barking losers (laughs) (laughs) keep whining (laughs) hurts doesn't it well we're hurting too so we don't care uh all right the legacy of rainies let's talk about that and including the effects of her absence so this is a big deal like maria's absence was the beginning of the peace process i suppose you could say rainies's absence well, it, it it was the beginning of things getting worse for a while because they wanted revenge they felt so bad that you know of her death so despite the devastation, she and her brother and sister wrought on Dorne. Her death was was still a tragedy for the Seven Kingdoms from a human rights perspective, which is kind of odd to say. It's like, well, not from the Dornish perspective. Well, yeah, not from the Dornish perspective. Not arguing that. They would spit at this take. But compared to her brother and sister, it wasn't close. She was by far the most concerned with making the Seven Kingdoms a more peaceful and just place. She had the most to do with creating more equity, the most to do with lifting peasants out of their miserable uh, lives that have been given to them by the setting of this place and this world. Uh, She had the most to do with just making her family popular and liked and and propaganda, whether you call it propaganda or just being a decent person, a little both. Yeah. Promoting art rather than violence. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. In fact, let's, that's a good lead into this quote. Queen Rhaenys was a great patron to the bards and singers of the Seven Kingdoms, showering golden gifts on those who pleased her. Though Queen Visenya thought her sister frivolous, there was a wisdom in this that went beyond a simple love of music. For the singers of the realm, in their eagerness to win the favor of the queen, composed many a song in praise of House Targaryen and King Aegon, and then went forth and sang those songs in every keep and castle and village green, from the Dornish marches to the wall. Thus was the conquest made glorious to the simple people, whilst Aegon the Dragon himself became a hero king. Oh, it only had the impact on the simple people, eh? Mm. I don't think so. It seems like it had uh, the maesters and the nobility were pretty biased too, especially given some of the other things we've gone over, like the way this text is written. If victory, it could be called. You know? <laughs> Stuff like that. So I 100% side with Rainey's on this one. Music is an extremely powerful tool in real life or in Westeros, and the way it's being portrayed here is extremely realistic. This sort of thing still happens today. Literally, there are cartels in Mexico that commission music like this to make them come off a little better. Because, you know, you're still trying to put lipstick on a pig when you're talking about a drug cartel, right? You know, they're like, yeah, we're, we're the good guys. No, but you can 
there are good things the cartels do that they try to amplify to make it downplay all the evil stuff they do, which is, there's quite a lot more of that. But governments are like that, too, in some ways, you know. And, you know, if <laughs> there's a lot of politicians use songs for their political campaigns, and they use songs that are familiar, ones that people already identify with. Like, you don't usually hear songs that no one's ever heard before. You hear classics. You hear, like, yeah, can we, hey, famous artists, can we use your song for our campaign? They're not, like... Sometimes they ask. Yes. Sometimes they just do it, and then just, yeah, yeah then get told cease and desist, but they've already done it, so... <laughs> and sometimes they use songs that aren't really quite what they think they are also, right? Like, Born in the USA is really kind of talking bad about Vietnam is really what the point of that song is. And but but most people got that point of that song wrong, so it worked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the chorus just ring the chorus out a few times. And yeah, I'll like there, attention. I think I've even mentioned this one before. It's not political, but there's a bank that did, or maybe life insurance campaign that used Iggy Pop song "Lust for Life," which is totally a heroin song. Like it's just totally a song about heroin addiction, and they were like "Lust for Life," like. <laughs> I don't know if you know what this means, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, uh, I don't know, commissioning or government influence aside, you know, the Vietnam War is also like a generation of music was inspired by that war. Not so very much by true. That war, but by trying to stop that war. Yes. Know? The opposite, which George would know very well, having, you know, being a Grateful Dead fan and, and being a, very much on the hippie side of things rather than on the, you know, pro-war side or whatever the opposite side of that is. And there's other examples in world, like I said. A Thousand Eyes of One was a Blood Raven propaganda song, basically. And of course, The Reigns of Castamere, right? That's like Tywin leaned into that one heavily, like very heavily. Also worth saying, newer listeners might not be aware that Aziz has recorded a cover of The Reigns of Castamere. It is on our SoundCloud, as which I'm putting in the chat right here in the live stream chat, the link. It's also in our Reigns of Castamere episode. Aziz has also done Jenny's song, which is uh, less <laughs> propaganda and less less relevant here, but also well done. It's history of Westeros propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put a link to that in the in the chat as well. Yeah, check that out if you're so inclined. A little teaser. The other thing you have to do, and I should put it on your list of things to oh, do, yeah. is Aziz was going to sing uh, Nymeria's song. The song about Nymeria that was um, on House of the Dragon. In House of the Dragon, because we were given some extra lyrics from the writer of that song that are not published. In fact, and we were waiting to publish them for when Aziz sings them. So yeah, we're the, we're one of the few people who have those lyrics. I don't know that I don't think any other YouTuber or podcast. I don't think you're out. Those. Like yeah. she sent them to us directly. So we're so. special. We have those. Anyways, yeah. but yeah, if you want to hear the rest of Nymeria's song, let's all motivate Aziz to. Uh, <laughs> record it right on thanks y'all yeah I'll, i would i would uh, some motivation would help me that's true but it may be before house of the dragon season two and of course so those songs are out there there's lots of them and and uh, in fact thousand eyes and one reigns of Castamere might have been inspired by some of these songs from the early conquest era which we don't have names for but there's of course there will be even older songs like that like songs about florian and john keel bear and the maiden fair apparently is super super old so yeah so Dorne had proven that contests of strength won't always work, especially certain types of contests of strength. If your enemies refuse to meet you on the ground of your choosing, then who knows, right? And they'll play their own version of the Game of Thrones instead. So this is a great example. Music is a great example of soft power. 
uh, something the Targaryens needed to get better at. Visenya thinks this is frivolous, which kind of shows maybe she's got a little blind spot to the value of things like this, and maybe Aegon wasn't so great at it either, although I suspect he was more in the middle. Visenya was one extreme, and maybe Rhaenys was the other. Uh, so Aegon, you know, he'd mostly gone with the direct route. I'm stronger than you, I'm more powerful than you, I, I'm, I'm on top. But, you know, he seems to lighten up a little bit and rule with a less heavy hand in the longer term because it doesn't work to rule with a heavy hand. It's better to have a soft touch with the silk glove, just knowing you have the iron gauntlet ready to go, especially when your iron gauntlet is Balerion. So you don't really have to be overbearing when you have Balerion. You can just, they know, you know, they've, you've already conquered the Seven Kingdoms. They know what you're capable of. It's not like Aegon was bad at soft power. But I think Visenya might have been. <laughs> Rainey seems to have been very understanding of it. Like, it, I can see things going a lot differently if she had lived. And future generations would struggle to get it right. Like, Aenys would be too soft. Too soft. <laughs> and Magor would be too hard. Kind of like his mother. Like, just no balance there. Jaehaerys and Alysanne, though, they did a very good job of finding that middle ground. And that's part of why it was probably the best era of... The Targaryen run to live under the best era of the Seven Kingdoms to live under, right? Yeah, I, quite possibly. Quite I don't, it's possibly. not like it was so amazing under Robert, I don't think. But yeah, although it wasn't necessarily bad under Robert, it got bad yeah. when it fell apart again. But that interim was okay. the fact that it <laughs> fell apart. That's kind of on Robert, right? Yes, and it yes. was a pretty short period of time compared to uh, maybe it's pretty long compared to most reigns, but short compared to Jaehaerys. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah, because fifteen years is a Above average, but it's yeah. not crazy long. Now, Aenys' softness, if we're talking about why Magor was hard, it's easy to draw a straight line there because of his mother, and he was more raised by his mother, whereas Aenys was more raised at court by his mother for a little while and then his father and that. But Rhaenys didn't coddle him. How could she? She died when he was three, right? That's too young for her to have established a pattern or a lifelong habit of raising him. That's the issue. When your mom dies when you're three, of course, that's going to be a gigantic factor that will impact your entire life. And you wonder whether Rhaenys was trying to have another kid with Aegon. I mean, they were still sleeping together, presumably, but that doesn't, I don't know if she wanted one. Probably did, but who knows? And she was nursing Aenys herself, which is interesting. You, you, like you, Very often in these scenarios, you have wet nurses and things like that. So it shows she was a little more hands-on, which I respect that. But of course, she couldn't, uh, she wasn't there later. <laughs> Not her fault, but she did put herself in danger. <laughs> now, uh, as well, Nina says that there's a historical parallel here, one that I wasn't particularly aware of. Aenys' softness is maybe supposed to be like Edward II of England. We'll come back to that when we're talking about Aenys. A little sneak preview there. Especially if you know, if you don't know who Edward II of England was, then that won't mean much to you. But if you do, then a little teaser for you. So yeah, most of whom Rainey's championed in terms of tried to uplift in society were the people, like you said, Sean, people who weren't warriors. And so he's trying to uplift that segment of society. The nonviolent elements of society give them a bigger voice in the cultural conversation, make them a more a part of society, which is why I think it's a big loss for her death, even though, again, the Dornish would be like, what the hell are you talking about, man? <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> artists, singers, musicians, creative types, and women. She also uplifted women. She tried to enhance women's rights. Now, there's it's a long road to, to make men and women equal in Westeros, one that obviously isn't 
there. But she really got that ball rolling in ways that almost no one had before. Like Alisanne, again, is a great notable exception of someone who did a lot for women in the Seven Kingdoms. And Alisanne was probably inspired by Rhaenys. That's her grandmother, right? I mean, they didn't meet because she died so young. But still, Rhaenys is going to be remembered, right? Like, obviously, of course, you're going to remember that. And so when we speak of Alisanne later, we will have to recall this and be like, well, what maybe, maybe even look for some specifics and think this seems like maybe it came from Rainey's a bit, or at least partially inspired by Rainey's. We'll never give Rainey's full credit for someone else's ideas, but yeah, that's, it's important. These influences are big. This is the first, one of the first queens of Westeros. Rainey's understandably took his mother's death poorly. I mean, what three-year-old wouldn't, but this is also a three-year-old with gigantic expectations placed on him. He's no ordinary three-year-old. Let's hear about it. Prince Aenys was three when his mother, Queen Rhaenys, and her dragon, Meraxes, were slain in Dorne. Her death left the boy prince inconsolable. He stopped eating and even began to crawl as he had when he was one, as if he had forgotten how to walk. His father despaired of him, and rumors flew about the court that King Aegon might take another wife, as Rhaenys was dead and Visenya childless and perhaps barren. The king kept his own counsel on these matters, so no man could say what thoughts he might have entertained. But many great lords and noble knights appeared at court with their maiden daughters, each more comely than the last. Can I say, Sean, I gave you this quote for a reason? Because I thought I'd cry if I read it. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I can't. Even sad. you hearing you read it, I was like, oh, it's so sad. Yeah, it is very sad. George is so good at this. <laughs> yeah, really, really sad. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, so Aegon might have considered that, but there's no indication he actually did. It was more like, well, maybe we can tempt him into this. Maybe he just will decide he needs to. Because you know, he's not going to want to. He doesn't want to have more kids. He doesn't want to remarry. But he might think it's necessary. He might be tempted into it if he finds one of these women very attractive. That might be, I mean, that's the thinking of these lords and ladies who are, to be fair, this is an unprecedented opportunity for ambitious types to be part of the first royal family ever established in Westeros after thousands of years. This is a gigantic opportunity. It turns out the opportunity wasn't actually there because he didn't marry anybody else, didn't con maybe didn't even consider it. But clearly people were taking the chance, taking that 1% shot. Like, it's worth it to try because we'll be enshrined in, as legends and maybe the first family in Westeros behind the Targaryens for who knows how long, for hundreds Probably. of years. They might be looking at it as a chance to become a dragon-riding family in the long term. We'll be married to dragon riders. We might get dragons. It's so much opportunity. Probably benefited Aegon ultimately, like, him not marrying someone else and just having this is like a thing to dangle in the front carrot, of people. the ultimate yeah. carrot, the Valyrian carrot. Yeah, like yeah. You, <laughs> you have to think there's some chance, some hope. Agreed, agreed. It does because it makes sense having one heir who's kind of spindly and looks like he can't handle the weight of this crown and this throne. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a legit possibility. And he, yeah, he, and and with Rainey's gone, the the idea that. There might not be another kid, and Visenya hadn't had a kid, yeah. And this is why, by why the way, that some people, by why the way? This is why, by the way, <laughs> that people suspect Visenya maybe of using some magic to get pregnant, which there's no evidence that's even a thing. But uh, I, I give it more credibility than in paper, because there's <laughs> <laughs> a little more to it than that. But honestly, we don't know if either of those things actually exist. And I could see Visenya pushing it, too. Some things that in this world might seem like sorcery, there might be a legitimate modern chemical explanation of some oh, potion yeah. that helped her get pregnant. You know, it, it could true. be a thing. That's true. That's true. Even if it wasn't, quote unquote, real magic, you know. Yeah. What people call magic, what really is magic isn't always the same. That's true. And I can see Visenya pushing the issue a bit like, 
I can see him considering to take another wife. Let's not do that. And the best way to make that happen is to have a child. So I'm going to make him sleep with me as often as I can. And well, maybe that's maybe that is why Magor did finally have sleep. The, the additional quantity of times they started sleeping together after Rhaenys' death may have finally paid off. And I and there's no way like Visenya was like shy about it, you know. <laughs> She'd be like, "We need to make another heir, you know. Get undressed now." This is the woman who cut his face when she when he wouldn't protect himself properly. So I think she's gonna come down heavily. I was gonna almost said come down hard, but that's I was too like, much come of a down. euphemism. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I said it anyway. Yeah. Couldn't help. It. I couldn't help it. Nina brings up the example of Tywin with respect to getting remarried. As a fa- it was a great example. Another famous person that was like, no. There's no replacing Joanna. I will not remarry. She was my childhood companion, you know, related to him. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that part's also a comparison. Married <laughs> trust is just no replacing that. You cannot replace. There's just no person will ever. It's like what it's like what uh, Laura said when uh, when the sun is burned out, no candle can replace it. Is that gonna is that gonna elicit some tears too? <laughs> no, no, boo to that. No, I boo to that. Nah, no, I, was, I was getting ready for my quote. I yeah, wasn't. Gotcha. Yeah. So, but it is a good parallel. Yeah. Jokes aside, that is a good parallel. He's, I think if the sun's burned out, a candle can replace it because you need to see some light. No, it actually can't. You will all die if the sun well, burns out. Well, in Aegon's <laughs> case, he has you know Visenya to replace it. He doesn't actually have to remarry. <laughs> she's pretty. She's a pretty bright light, especially if you count Vagar. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so there's they weren't gonna. They were they they were fighting a losing battle. No one was gonna like. Here's a replacement for Rainey's. Like, oh yeah, her. No, it just wasn't gonna happen. I think I do think the Tywin example is great, not because he's like Tywin, but because. Rainey's was irreplaceable to him like Joanna was to Tywin. So that talk stopped, though. Once Visenya announced she was pregnant, the, like, remarriage talk stopped. And she was very bold about it. She's like, it's a son. <laughs> you know, which we've seen that before. In fact, from Magor, Magor is going to say, I made a House Targaryen a new son last night when he slept with his wife for the first time. Of course, he did not even make any child, let alone a son. Visenya was at least pregnant when making the announcement. <laughs> like Megor's just like, yeah, I know my sperm's gonna get there. <laughs> I'm laying and it down now. You got a fifty-fifty chance of being right in the first place. Yeah, it's and true. even if you're wrong, you got several months of it getting people on board with the plan. And even if you're wrong, precedent's been established for a queen already, anyway. So yeah. It's funny, too, because maybe that slightly adds to her sorceress reputation. They're like, oh, it really was a son. It's like, she just won a coin flip. Like, that's she really the- got the 50-50. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> right. How did she do that? How did they? Yeah. <laughs> Only it's, sorcery it's, it's, could it's give you a 50% as, chance. It's really just as simple as keeping your womb inc- incredibly warm for, <laughs> what is it, like four months? <laughs> she just, like, sits and squats on the volcano for a while, just, like, sits there for a while, keeping it warm, you know, <laughs> yeah, letting yeah. the volcanic ash just, you know... <laughs> filter up in there you know <laughs> like you said sean non-magical means <laughs> to <laughs> encourage pregnancy those are real scientific means i mean you watch the office they'll tell you you just a simple matter of keeping the womb incredibly warm for the first four months and then cold for one month yeah <laughs> it'll, it'll be a was boy. that jan that said that i'm trying no, to no dwight tells angela that, <laughs> right. that when, they, when right. she's gonna get pregnant he says it has to be a boy and she's like i can't ensure that he's like yeah you can it's a simple matter yeah, that's right. <laughs> keeping your womb warm <laughs> and doing a f- there's a few other things i'm misquoting it but I, the warmth is relevant for targaryens so another like awkward 
and maybe not true, but I think probably true, or at least possibly true aspect to Rhaenys' legacy, is that because she died, Visenya had more pressure to create another child for House Targaryen. And because those two children, those two sons, came from different women, it formed two branches of House Targaryen in the long term. Of the Visenya branch that was populated by Magor. Well, not really, because he didn't have kids, but it would still continued that way for a little while. And the Aenys branch, which really was the one that continued, they really did have a lot of children. And those two branches going up against each other, kind of like the Greens and Blacks or Targaryens and Blackfires later. This is the first seed of the royal house going up against itself later is the birth of Magor, because now you have two half-brothers that... Aren't very alike. And Why, Visenya should have tried for a girl. She should have kept her womb cold for four months. <laughs> she doesn't know how to keep her womb cold. She just runs hot all the time. There's no such thing. But here's a good long quote more on Rainies and how she operated and how she uplifted the common folk. Quote. Don't call Rainies a moron, though. <laughs> no. Okay. No moron for her. <laughs> Queen Rainies also took a great interest in the small folk and had a special love for women and children. Once, when she was holding court in the Aegon Fort, a man was brought before her for beating his wife to death. The woman's brothers wanted him punished, but the husband argued that he was within his lawful rights since he had found his wife abed with another man. The right of a husband to chastise an erring wife was well established throughout the Seven Kingdoms, save in Dorne. The husband further pointed out that the rod he had used to beat his wife was no thicker than his thumb and even produced the rod in evidence. When the queen asked him how many times he had struck his wife, however, the husband could not answer. But the dead woman's brothers insisted there had been a hundred blows. Queen Rhaenys consulted with her maesters and septons, then rendered her decision. An adulterous wife gave offense to the seven, who had created women to be faithful and obedient to their husbands, and therefore must be chastised. As God has but seven faces, however, the punishment should consist of only six blows, for the seventh blow would be for the stranger, and the stranger is the face of death. Thus, the first Six blows the man had struck had been lawful, but the remaining 94 had been an offense against gods and men and must be punished in kind. From that day forth, the rule of six became a part of the common law along with the rule of thumb. The husband was taken to the foot of the hill of Rhaenys, where he was given 94 blows by the dead woman's brothers using rods of lawful size. It's hard for me not to chuckle throughout a lot of that, as awful as it is, because I do have the sense of humor of a small child. I mean, the phrase rods of lawful size and mm -hmm. 94 blows by the dead woman's brothers. It's just too much. It's too much. The word rod alone is, is, is funny. I, and mean, I, think, I think all of you listening have probably heard of that old wives tale of, of that. The rule uh, of thumb? Yeah, the rule of thumb. Yeah. Which is not a real thing. It's completely made up. 
yeah. <laughs> the rule but of thumb it never matter existed. For uh, George still wanting to riff on real uh, old wives' tales, frankly, yeah. like yeah, people believe it's true. So that yeah, I mean, it's it, you would you should have fit false things in your world that people believe because that's how things work. Mm-hmm. The real world is like that too. We don't know if George actually knows whether this is a real thing or not. Yeah, yeah. We don't know true. if he knows it's not real, but <laughs> it's not. Real thumb was made up. By an 18th century judge. Yeah, to be clear, George <laughs> likes reading popular histories. I think he knows when he reads them that there is false falsehoods and things in them, and he can just appreciate a good story mm-hmm. in it. Yes, I exactly. I think so. Which George uh, said, I think he even said that in our interview with him. He's like, yes, like a lot of times the the false history is more interesting than the real history. And when you're writing fiction, you're 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 allowed to borrow from either because yeah. it's fiction. Like this could happen. This could but have it happened. Also means this that- isn't like super implausible. Like this isn't like this could never have happened. You know. But it also means that we shouldn't take something that George put in his in his world as him being like, oh yeah, this is how the real world works, and like this is so historically accurate, which is something yeah. people look at. I don't think he at all would say, oh my works are historically accurate. No, he no. never would. <laughs> and that's part of why we have what what we're here to do is to clarify these things for y'all. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack in this, but man, I, the thing I got hung up with was uh, hung up on is the seven who had created women to be faithful and obedient to their husbands. Like, Of course, we all know that, Sean. Were <laughs> husbands created to be faithful and obedient to their wives? Husbands are created to lead so... their wives, of course, to be a leader. <laughs> <laughs> and to beat their wives when they, only yeah. six times though, if they if they yeah. cheat. Very progressive-minded of a... <laughs> I, I agree, Sean, there's a lot to unpack. Yeah, and this goes to show like Rainies can't just go ahead and just like flip the whole script and be like, no, this is wrong. We're gonna totally undo everything. You got to bring them along slowly. Like you got to ch- change as much as possible in a sh- you know in the time you can, and then change later more. You can't just you all of a sudden undo where, all yeah. sexism all at once. That's just never gonna. You can't just kill the patriarchy in one minute. That's just not gonna happen. But that 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 one parenthetical reference is really big. The the right of a husband to chastise an erring wife was well established throughout the Seven Kingdoms, save in Dorne. Ah. Huge reason for Dorne to be like, we're not taking your laws. It's backsliding. We have moved beyond some of your patriarchy. We are still a very patriarchal society, but at least we have women rulers and other things. And you can't just beat your wife because you want to. To be fair, this is cheating on your husband, which is a lot more than doing nothing. But still, it seems like they could had uh, a lot of leeway to beat their wife for pretty much anything, but not in Dorne. And so when Mary is holding out, to not have the Targaryen rule over them. She's holding out, in a sense, for all the women of Dorne to not be put under that rule of thumb and things like it. Like, well, it's, this is when they talk about maintaining their freedom, their independence, to talk about being made slaves of the Iron Throne. That's what we're talking about. They're talking about having to take on laws that, to them, look maybe not quite like slavery, but in that direction, like in the wrong direction for you want to be taking your your people. I think that's an underrated reason why the Dornish held out the way they did, because they look at laws like this and say, no, we don't want to have your your laws applied to us. Not not only do we not want your people and your dragons down here, but we don't want your laws down here either, because our laws are better. Our laws are more forward thinking and, and taking on your laws would be backsliding. It would be it would it would be backwards. I don't want to take away from your point, but I would be more bought into it if someone had said that if Mary had said yeah we're not yeah, joining your land with your beating of women or you know they they, they didn't however much it was a motivation they never named it as such so. yeah and there's obviously just we can't just say that Dorne is like 
the biggest champion of women. You know, they just are maybe compared to the rest of the Seven Kingdoms. You know, like that line from the TV show, like, we don't harm little girls in Dorne, Oberyn says. And Cersei's like, yeah, you do. Everywhere in the world, they harm little girls. And, and, and Oberyn yeah. didn't really have a retort for this. Like, yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> and speaking of Oberyn, like, Nina points out how he treated the wife of his first child, which is pretty horrible. So, but it's still an irony, right? That, that Rhaenys being the primary enemy of Dorne, the one who might have actually respected some of those laws that they already had, she was the primary antagonist and the one whose death was probably a setback to the rest of the Seven Kingdoms in that regard. So it's just a bunch of brutal ironies kind of wrapped in together and like things that don't fully match up in terms of how these laws are aligned. But not not in a way that doesn't make sense, but just kind of the, the peculiarities of, of government and war and just the things that the natural hypocrisies that come from such things. So yeah, we can't claim Rainey's would have been good for Dornish people <laughs> because of what she did. But it was a setback for women and musicians and non-martial people in the rest of the Seven Kingdoms. So yeah, just a strange irony there that how that how those things all kind of clicked. She was the only real advocate north of the Red Mountains for that sort of thing. So yes, I don't know that a lot of people realized that, especially people within the setting. But uh, that was a big tragic loss, and that's why her death was felt by so many people. Why so many people were mad? Why so many people like wanted to tear apart the the Dornish peace? Envoys. Why Aegon was worried about that. It was because of Rhaenys, I think. Not because they were losing the war. Not because they had some Lord Connington was assassinated while hunting. I don't think they cared about that all that much. I mean, the, the Connington lands, they did. Like, those, those small folk did. But it was about Rhaenys. It was about the person that had made them love them dying. Like, she maybe sort of tricked them into that, but you know, she also treated them well in some parts. The music stuff is what I'm talking about. But all, and these policies and the treating women better. They, she was beloved, you know. Maybe she didn't deserve it all. But the fact is, that outcry, I think, has more to do with, with her than anything else. I think she's the single biggest factor. This is a nuance, but, uh, you know, tricked and earlier, I think you said manipulated propaganda. Not that there isn't or can't be that type of thing mixed up in song or public opinion or whatever. But... It still makes it, I don't think it's inherently as negative of that because the thing is that a lot of the public has no opinion. They have no knowledge, right? Yeah, a that's strong true. or something like that mm -hmm. is just presenting the story to the world. And now maybe the story has some propaganda mixed up in it, but just the average person on a farm in the middle of the North somewhere, they don't know the details of any of these battles going on in Dorne, right? Very little. So yeah. when the song comes to them, whether it's manipulated or completely honest, that is creating public opinion by even making the public aware, right? Yeah, so. that's true. You're right. That just just being aware, awareness of the song, whether they take the lyrics to heart or not, the fact that the song exists itself. It just yeah, whether they know the words to Thousand Eyes and One, they know there's a song about Blood Raven out there. Whether they know the lyrics yeah. to Reigns of Castamere, they they have they get the gist of it. <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's a good point. A very good point. It still has an effect, even if you don't know the song entirely. Or however accurate or propaganda it is, yeah. it's still presenting. It's a way to present information to the public. You know? And in a setting like this, we have to forget we live in a world of like giant music conglomerates and where you can look up the lyrics to any song with a Google search, like without spending any money. There would be ver large variations, not just in lyrics. But in melody and the things will just get changed. People will just change it, do their own version. Yeah, yeah, like there would be var huge varieties. Like 
we've all heard covers of our favorite songs. Everything would be a cover. You wouldn't know what the original sounded like. It's just everything is a cover and the original is lost to history because there's no recording of it. And even the original singer would have expected, like there would be no expectation that it would be the same. <laughs> even like they wouldn't think of it that way. It'd be like all songs are meant to, to have a little growth and change and, you know, options. Wow, there's another verse to that song? I never heard that verse. <laughs> really? What's where'd that one come from? Yeah, I heard it from the singer in Old Town and Yeah, it does you can kind of the lyrics are a little different on that verse. Maybe it was written by someone like you might have Maesters let like study this sort of thing and track down it's kind of a different subject altogether i'm getting into here but it's kind of that's neat. the brass that's the brass link <laughs> the music origins <laughs> yeah what could do they i don't think they have brass instruments in westeros do they they probably have woodwinds but i don't know there's they, probably trumpets that announce there, you might, yeah, you're right there might be are there trumpets there are horns i don't know yeah, there are horns do those count i don't know if they have trumpets though they might if they yeah, have anything, yeah. they have trumpets. That's like, the, that's like the simplest one. There's definitely horns. Yeah, I was so going to say, I think they, like, well, they use like the word trumpet. trumpet, I think. Like, it trumpets their arrival, but whether oh. that means a trumpet, I don't know. Yeah. But I think they use the word I think you're trumpet. probably right, yeah. And there, they, there's other fairly okay. advanced meta, m metal things. So. You find it, Sean? Woke in darkness to the blare of trumpets. There it is. Jay yeah. was shaking her by the shoulder as Tyrion. There's 76 that's results. That's a real trumpet, yeah. yes. Okay, cool. So that, that settles it. Yeah, all right. This is definitely trumpets. <laughs> <laughs> and thus there are also similar instruments it can't there can't just be one <laughs> brass <laughs> brass <laughs> instrument it's not that's the only one <laughs> so the we don't know what kind of physical legacy there is for Miria. we don't even really know how the martels bury their dead honestly we don't know what, the, what kind of traditions they have there they probably just have a crypt or something you know some graveyard i don't know for rainies we know that the targaryens do ashes you know they burn their bodies but they didn't have Rhaenys' body unless it was delivered to them in secret. Aegon did build the Sept of Remembrance on Rhaenys' hill, a.k.a. the Hill of Rhaenys, as it was described in the Rod example there. And we don't know exactly when it was started or finished, to be honest. It's a significant building. It's a Sept, so it would, would have been a long time to build that. But I would guess he started building it, like, right after her death or maybe right after the war. You know, maybe money might have been tight during the war, but once it was over, yeah, like... Go ahead and allocate the funds for that. If you don't remember the Sept of Remembrance, that's because it's not there anymore. <laughs> it's the, it's been replaced, and then the new thing has since been burned. And that new thing is the Dragon Pit, which, of course, is in ruins. So, yeah, a lot has changed on the Hill of Rainies afterwards, and that ties partly into the whole interplay between the two cadet branches. Nothing like getting rid of the Sept of Remembrance as a way to prehensively wipe out memory of that side of the family which yes indeed magor was responsible for that and we'll be talking about magor not next week well we will be talking about magor next week but not magor's reign we will be talking more about the reign of Aegon the conqueror the peace process the dragon's peace yes not his piece of cake Though perhaps in some ways it was a piece of cake compared to the first 13 years of his rule anyway. As part of our outro, a few of you at least sent in, well, two people sent in dragon acronyms, at least for now. We may get more later as more people hear this episode. But One for now, is from Fox and Brambles who yeah. did our logo, the History of Westeros logo that y'all see all the time. Uh, she said, daring, regal, aesthetic, gorgeous, organic, noble, according to the Valyrians. Nah, that's <laughs> good. That's good. 
And Wheezy Squeezebox says, dreadful, raging, awful, ghastly, omnivore, nasty. Ghastly and nasty. I like it. Nastly. <laughs> ghastly yeah, and nasty. That's according to the Dornish. Yes. According to the Dornish. That's right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Both sides weighing in with an acronym. Uh, Dornish Dame says, in a Feast for Crows, John sends Darion to Old Town with Sam and Maester Eamon in the hope that he will sing songs to encourage more men to join the Night's Watch. That's right. Great example. Darion, not a very good person, but... Honey poured over thunder is the description of his voice. So absolutely good <laughs> at that part of his job. And that's a smart use of his abilities. Like John, maybe John could have maybe figured out that he wouldn't actually do his job given his personality. But that is a good use of a singer in the Night's Watch is to recruit. If that one crappy recruit recruits three decent recruits, well, that's a better job. <laughs> that's the best thing you're going to get out of him. <laughs> so... Pretty good, pretty good thinking, John, even if you maybe missed one little aspect of it. But Arya took care of that. You might have just needed another able-bodied... Someone to stick with him. Yeah, like uh, Sam and the maester are going to yeah. struggle on his voyage, you know, who's carrying the luggage or whatever. But... Good point. Yeah, and of course, Arya uh, put all that to rest anyway, so... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Darian, you did. <laughs> and, but not Arya's first kill, just her... First kill in Bravos, right? Yeah, that was her first Bravosi kill, I think. Not sanctioned by the Faceless Men. They weren't happy about that. But they still gave her more kills later because she's talented at it. <laughs> and they don't find many recruits, speaking of. You don't find many people with a voice with Honey Port Over Thunder. You also don't find many recruits for the House of Black and White. So both are very rare skills. Rare skill sets, rather. Our trivia question. The, answer, the question was, Dornish Blank became slang north of the Red Mountains for cowardice. Fill in the blank. Courage. Dornish courage was a mocking, like, sarcastic term for cowardice. Dornish courage means cowardice. Yes. That, that doesn't seem to have carried over into modern times. So that was that was a, maybe a shorter term phrase. We mentioned a few episodes that you might want to check out if you haven't already because they're related to this one. Of course, the Nymeria episodes, Daron the First, came up. Hardcore Houses, we didn't mention it by name, but we talked about the, the Ullers, which is one of the Hardcore Houses. Uh, Under the Dragon's High Tower, Reigns of Castamir, that's one that you might be interested in. Mantaris, we mentioned. Valerian, The Doom, Dragonstone. We got lots of episodes on Valyria. We got an episode on House Celtigar, they came up in this one. And The Century of Blood came up in this one, too. We also have the Last Storm episode available for patrons and members only. That's the most recent Patreon episode, but we've got a lot of other ones, like, say, the Red Kraken, like Gagasos. Uh, yeah, lots of stuff like that. In fact, that Mantaris episode I mentioned is technically a patrons-only episode. And Sean is here to read a few fun Patreon names. As always, I'll do a, a couple old, a couple new. Got Robert the Red Falcon of Winterfell. Nice. Lady Jane of House Celticar, wielder of Valerian Steel Axe Painkiller. Oh, I hope I say this one right. I, Lady, I know how to say it properly. I'll correct you if you get it wrong. Okay. So go ahead. Okay. Lady Lexara Dazo. Lajara. Almost. You almost Lajara. Okay. Yeah, very close. I knew with the, with the H, I knew to make it the Joe, but yeah. yeah. Lady Lajara Dajo. Yes. The Iron Lily, Master Archer, Castellan of the Summer Island Keep Arboreal Point. Captain of the all-female Wailing Widows, Women and Children First. Yeah. That was like a two-liner. That was like a Danny level. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that one. And then we've got Sir Devin Snow, the Wolf Tamer, Shadow of Wolfswood. Yeah. Lydia, Mother of Frenchies, Breaker of Chairs. <laughs> and Royce Aaron, the Bronze Falcon of the Vale. Nice. 
Like it. Yeah, Royce, Aaron. Mixing Royce and Aaron, Bronze and Falcons. Yeah. That's cool. Got to like that. The two big houses there. Thanks again to Nina for the great takes. Lots of good ones this time. Nothing unusual about that, though. That is a regular thing I say at the end of these episodes because it's true so often. Thanks as well to Joey, Jesse, and Bran, and Michael Klarfeld for the various intros and outros we have in our show, whether it's this one or our House of the Dragon coverage. We got a lot of different looks we bring you, and those are the fellows that help with that. Michael Klarfeld's maps are always on display here behind me. Uh, Sean's got his and movie And, of course, posters, Michael Klarfeld also did our, our intro and outro that y'all love so much. That's true. Our most famous outro, intro, outro, meaning because it was, it was our first one. Yeah, we also have a House of the Dragon one that is done by Bran. But, That's yeah, right. he, Michael does the one that is going to play in just a minute. So, my friends and fellow Westorians, if you want to uh, hook up with us on our social media sites, do uh -huh. so. Face, uh, hook up with us, yes, yes. <laughs> Through virtually, yes. <laughs> Facebook, Doesn't Twitter, make it better. <laughs> uh, our Patreon. We've got lots of ways to interact with us. Our Discord, of course. I believe all those links are in the description. Whether you're reading the description of the podcast episode or the video, wherever you're seeing it, it should be there. And if you don't find it, just go to historyofwesteros.com. It's got links to everything. Whether it's one of our sponsors or just our different social media spots, as well as all our episodes. Until next time, Valar, reread us.